Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Future Projection Podcast. This is episode 10. Uh, as always, I'm Carlos Glazo, joined by Ben Badler. Ben, how's it going, man? I'm doing great, Carlos. We got minor league opening day, and we got the draft in full swing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's been a long time since we've had minor league baseball. So I'm very, very, very happy for for this day to finally be here. Yes, we're recording this podcast a day before minor league opening day, and for that we have a, a special podcast today. We've got a few guests in the house. We have Josh Norris, who has been on the podcast before, and the last time he was on our podcast, I think he basically insulted our show and told people not to review it and somehow he's back he's the first two-time guest josh how are you doing i'm doing as well as as you'd think for someone who comes on here and insults the show and says everything is terrible uh but like ben i'm pretty excited that minor league baseball starts today if you're listening to this uh i'm less excited about the water falling from the sky right now and the continued threat of water falling from the sky for the next 24 48 hours uh but otherwise morale is good well that is good to hear uh we also have kyle glazer making his first appearance on the podcast uh kyle as you all know who as you all who probably know who are listening to this podcast is uh covering prospects covering the majors for us kyle welcome to the show how are you doing are you as amped up for the minor league season as uh ben and josh are I don't think anyone in the world is as amped up as Josh is specifically for the return of the minor leagues. And uh, Ben's obviously uh, pretty excited. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to these guys getting back in action. I'm the type of guy who loves baseball at all levels. Obviously I spent a lot of time in major league games writing about what's going on there, but I also enjoy going and seeing all the different guys on the way up. I think one of my favorite kind of weeks I had at BA was remember covering the all-star game in DC and a week later I was in Danville, Virginia covering rookie ball, kind of getting the top to bottom view of everything is something I enjoy. So yeah, I'm definitely excited. I think I'm scheduled to go see Inland Empire and Ranch Cucamonga here these first couple of days, which is low A baseball now, and then hop over to Angel Stadium and see the Angels and Rays go at it. Are we yeah. getting rookie ball this year, Josh? Uh, you mean like at the Appy League and stuff? No. Um, no, we're dude, getting come the on. League. We are come getting on. the Appy League. I, I know the Appy League is. <laughs> I mean, what are they doing with the Gulf Coast League and Arizona League this year? Do you think they play that as There's, expected? Or? They think they're going to. It sounds like it's a 98% chance. Like, I've seen the list of who's going to have which teams, um, and it's there, but there's still questions because you know covid uh the dsl is very iffy um the way it was explained to me was it's about a coin flips chance uh this year so we'll have something but their schedules are in place there are teams that probably will happen but you know until those lights come on we don't know as a little less uh certain is extended spring training like some teams are beginning this week or so. Others aren't beginning until the beginning of 
June uh, for extended just because they don't have that many players to form functional uh, extended teams. Like I was told one team has like 12 players that they're not sending to affiliates. So that's not really good enough for an extended spring squad. We'll get into more minor league talk as we go. But before we jump into that and a few other topics, I wanted to give Kyle a chance because we have done this for each of the guests we've had on so far. Um, Kyle, if you want to talk about kind of how you got into Baseball America, what do you cover for the site? Because I know Ben and myself have talked about this. Josh talked about it. I believe we let JJ talk about that as well. So if you just want to give listeners who maybe aren't familiar with you, although the assumption is you guys generally know us if you're following Baseball America and you're listening to our two and a half hour baseball america podcast but you can uh, kind of tell the listeners about yourself kyle if you want yeah i played as long as i could as long as my talent level allowed me to play which uh, in the grand scheme of things was not that far and uh yeah i think just as soon as that became clear that my dream of being a major league baseball player wasn't gonna become a reality wanted to find a way to be involved in the game somehow so for a long time i thought it was going to be broadcasting uh, i initially kind of pursued a play-by-play track. I went to Arizona State because it was a great journalism school and really jumped headfirst into the broadcasting there. But uh, my senior year, a lot of the broadcast jobs I noticed were asking for writing experience as well. So my senior year, I joined the school paper and just to get some writing clips while potentially applying for broadcast jobs. And I really fell in love with it. I actually was a history major and journalism minor. And so I was doing a ton of writing anyway. And it just was very, very natural, kind of married writing with baseball. And uh, I actually was covering a whole bunch of other different sports. And once I graduated, that was kind of the track I took and uh, started at one small newspaper covering a little bit of everything, high school sports with a focus on baseball. But, you know, those first jobs, the small papers, you do everything. Uh, Second job as well, uh, jumped up and was covering baseball again at a more uh, medium-sized paper. And that's where I jumped on my first beat. I was the Padres beat writer for a couple of years. That's actually where I first met you, Carlos, while you were interning for MLB. Yep. I was there. Uh, I love it. I was, I was my old job uh, as a beat writer. And then uh, BA, uh, we'd had some conversations. I had had some conversations with them and a position opened up. Um, I want to say it was April or May 2016 after uh, Josh Levenfall left the previous winter. And uh, ultimately I interviewed with John Manuel and Will Lingo and got the job. So yeah, I really just kind of took this kind of journalism track, but it was always focused on baseball and writing about baseball and being around the game. And, you know, in some ways I kind of climbed the minors myself, if you will. My very first beat was covering the high desert Mavericks uh, for the Victorville daily press. It was high a ball Mariners affiliate and worked my way up and eventually got on a major league beat and did that for a few years. And then, yeah, I mean, as soon as an opportunity arose to write for a national magazine and do things on a national basis it was a no-brainer for me so uh, now for us I, I lead all of our major league coverage I think those of you who you know read the site read the magazine know I you know cover world series all-star game you know major league trends etc uh, but I also do a lot with the prospects I do a lot of minor league work and I help out with southern California draft coverage as well just because you know this is where I'm from this is where I played I this is where I covered my previous job so knowing the coaches and the scouts and just the landscape so I feel like my job description is a little bit nebulous sometimes. I also do a lot of podcasting, as you all know. It's kind of weird being on the other side, being a a guest, not a host. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, for the most part, just national writer doing a lot of MLB and top prospect stuff is kind of the way I'd say my primary uh, job description is right now. 
Yeah. If you're, if you're at baseball America, there's certainly a lot of overlap and it is a great time to, to be at baseball America and to be a, a, be a reader, listener and subscriber, because it's been so long since we've had this much overlap at a baseball level. I mean, we've gotten to enjoy the game being played at the high school and college level and the major league level for the last few months and weeks, but it, it really feels like more than a year since we've had any minor league play. So many of these prospects who were drafted in the last two years really have had little or no time in real games. It's just, it's just a very weird space to be in, but I'm thrilled that we're actually kind of getting these prospects back on a field. The minor league season is taking shape. Um, but before we dive into that, since you guys are all involved in some capacity in our draft coverage, uh, I think everyone in this call has seen more draft players in this class in person than I have this year, which is a bit odd, but I think it's true. Uh, wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the BA 400 update we just rolled out that is on the site now. If you're listening to this podcast, we expanded from the top 300 players to the top 400 players in the class. There were a lot of shuffling of the rankings involved in that as well. This class continues to be extremely volatile. Uh, it's been the most chaotic draft season draft cycle that I've covered here. Um, and it seems like every day we're kind of trying to figure out who ranks as the top player in the class. The top four guys are kind of juggling with each other and there's no real consensus and beyond the elite tier, it, it really falls apart pretty quickly as well. So if you want to see how we have the class lining up right now, get notes on risers. Uh, you can check that out on baseball America, but I wanted to just throw it to you guys. Um, who have been out there kind of seeing some players. And really, I guess I want to direct this to Ben and Josh before we get into some minor league stuff. Adrian Del Castillo is one of one of the players who kind of entered this draft class as maybe the safest college hitter in the class or maybe the safest hitter in general in the class, given his performance. You guys have both seen him in person in recent weeks. It's a strong ACC catching class between Del Castillo, Henry Davis, Matthew Nelson, who's one of the biggest risers in today's update. You guys put eyes on Del Castillo. What did you think about him generally? Um, and if you have any other thoughts on the class, I know, Ben, you've been running around for a while, uh, and we've all been kind of having conversations internally about this draft class, but I'll throw it to you first, Ben. I saw Miami play this week against Boston College, and I really liked Sal Freelich. <laughs> he, he looks like a top 10 pick the Boston college center fielder. He's in our top 10 ranking. Again, he looked really good, both offensively and defensively. I can't imagine there was any scout who saw that series or who has seen both of those guys extensively this year, who would have Adrian Del Castillo ahead of Sal Freelich. I, I think it's, it's tough. Like we've talked about a lot, Carlos, with the college hitters. It's, you know, those are the typically the safer guys, the, the pure bat college hitters tend to move up the draft board as, as draft day comes. But that's also typically because you have multiple years of history on them, both at the, you know, during the, during the, during the normal college season and in summer baseball, whether it's the Cape or, or team USA. And that just isn't, isn't the case this year with, with college hitters. And I think Del Castillo came into the year 
like you said, with the thought that, all right, well, this is one of the best hitters in the class. And, okay, maybe there's some question on how good his defense will be. But, uh, if you know, if he can stick behind the plate, it's, it's a chance for, you know, an elite hitting catcher. But, uh, you know, the, the numbers on paper have been solid. I don't – he doesn't swing and miss too much. I think he has a pretty good sense for the strike zone. But there's – not a ton of power there and yeah, just really quickly his his line right now as we record he's hitting 293 393 442 that's the lowest slug of his career by a pretty significant margin and he has 20 walks and 20 strikeouts yeah so again he's he's not swinging and missing a whole lot he he has a sense for the strike zone but he's not driving the ball with a whole bunch of impact to to put it mildly either in games or just watching him take batting practice to this weekend and I think there's some pretty significant questions about whether he actually is going to catch so you have and he actually even played right field uh, in in this past series um, I, I did see him catch one one game but um, but yeah I, I think there's pretty significant questions on his receiving ability and, and his just his 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 agility and and quickness behind the plate. So if he has to go to another position, maybe a corner outfielder. I didn't look great out there either, but all right, he's not used to playing that position. So if he goes to a corner outfield position or first base, it's hard to see him having the bat to carry him there or just the offensive production to be a regular at those spots. And then, uh, you know, defensively it's, if he does stick a catcher, I think you're looking at below average defense there. So that's going to eat away at his value. So I, I came away with a lot more question marks on, on him. I thought Sal Freelick absolutely looked like a top 10 pick, but Adrian Del Castillo, it seems like he's kind of going the, the other direction. And, and I noticed from talking to other scouts who've, who've seen him, you know, obviously I saw him this series and then we've seen him a lot more than I have throughout the season. I think it's a lot of the same concerns that they have too. Yeah. Josh, do, do you have a, a similar opinion on Del Castillo after seeing him or do you, did you pick out anything different? Yeah, I was, I was underwhelmed by uh, Del Castillo considering at the time he was our number one college bat on the board. Um, I was expecting, you know, something and, didn't really even get that, you know, he managed the strike zone pretty well, showed a solid field to hit. They, it was notable that they had him in an extreme infield shift already, although the outfield was played straight up. I thought I noticed that he didn't respond well to well-located velocity. Um, there was, you know, I mean, Austin Love was blowing 95 late in his outing and he was you know, half swinging or, or missing at it. Um, he had a double in one of the games that I saw. It was like 88 or 87, and he didn't didn't pull it. He, you know, slapped it down the opposite field line, which could take one of two ways. Either it's a good piece of hitting, or, and I'll say again, the outfield played straight up, or he just didn't have the bat speed to pull. I, you know, looking at the swing from the side, slowed down it. He kind of starts back, loads, loads his hands kind of funky before – you know, bringing it down and getting it into the zone, which I do think 
can hamper him going forth with velocity. Uh, defensively, it wasn't particularly pretty back there. It wasn't really mobile uh, or, or really explosive back there. Just watching him compared to Carlos Perez, their other catcher, was really night and day. You could see Perez kind of bouncing around back there, doing everything, blocking balls five hole, even with nobody on base. It just wasn't the same for uh, Del Castillo. So I kind of was like, this is the best hitter we have on our board. Uh, Josh, Josh and Carlos, have you guys seen Luca Tresh yet I this year? Yeah. Well, just video. I've seen video of him, but I haven't been to a game in person. Hopefully, that yeah, will start I was soon. Say, I get my second and, shot tomorrow yeah. or two days from now. I, I was just going to say, like, just seeing Luca Tresh, who I think also has some questions in terms of his receiving and, and defensive ability. Yeah, like I, I thought Lucas Luca Tresh was a, a better defender than Adrian Del Castillo. Like, I, I think. I think I think Tresh can catch. He was he was pretty agile and and flexible behind the plate, and he has a strong arm, and he's he's quick getting up into his throwing position. I, I think he's going to stick behind the plate. Whereas Del Castillo, I had I had more questions of is this guy actually going to be a catcher at the major league level? With Tresh, I got one game, and I did not pick the correct game to get. Um, he he was fine behind the plate. I thought. I mean, you talk about the one knee stance. This is beyond one knee. He was borderline in the splits. Yeah, he gets it out there wide for a long, which is fine, but it also locks you up when you have to try to defend a pass ball or a cross up, and that cost him a couple times. Yeah, is- I had a similar kind of reaction that you're describing, Josh, when I was watching him. I thought he really struggled to receive, which was one of my bigger questions. Um, so I'm curious what if there is a consensus that forms on on his defense as we kind of progress through the season and you know he, he was this bad game to pick for offense because he had he did a single late but other than that it was a no contact day walks and strikeouts it's like all right I, I don't even know if i got any swings really for the first three or four at bats as he was facing ryan cusick uh that day so it well was, i it was a great look i think the general tone that you guys are kind of talking about dal castillo where it's specific to him kind of parallels the tone that we have with industries about the college hitters in this class. And that is why guys like Henry Davis and Sal Frilich, you mentioned Ben are, are kind of jammed in that top 10, but Kyle, is there any optimism to be had on the West coast? And I've done a lot of calls uh, for our draft coverage out there. How would you describe the talent on the West coast for the draft this year? Um, I know there are a couple of really interesting pitchers that are shooting up, but it seems like maybe the bats are a little light after you get out of the, uh, the top group but just your general thoughts on, on what you've heard out there and any players you're excited about. Yeah. The talent is very, very down out West. And that's relative of course, because the West coast typically has a tremendous amount of talent, especially in Southern California. So there's still some good players, but it's nowhere near as loaded really at the top or depth wise, as it has been in past years, there are still some very good players. Marcelo Mayer is a stud. Everything about him defensively, he's just so silky smooth. The quality of contact, the quality of at-bats, his presence in the box, there's power coming. It's a really, really special package. And there's a reason he's very likely going to go in the top five picks. Uh, there was never a question going into the year about him falling outside the top 10. And now there's a pretty wide consensus that he's not getting out of the top five and, and deservedly. So he's that caliber of talent. 
Matt McClain got off to a slow start. He's picked it back up. He had a 16-game hitting streak that was just snapped on Sunday. I would say with him, he's another guy that at times we've had as one of the top college hitters in the class. He was in our preseason top 10 of the draft rankings, I believe. And with Matt McClain, the general consensus is, and this has been the general consensus for a little bit now, is he's a good player. He can do a lot of good things for you. Uh, but he fits more in the 10 to 20 range than the one to 10 range in terms of the draft, just in terms of what he's going to give you. There's no question. He is not a shortstop. He's a guy that's going to play some second, maybe can bounce to center, can fill in at short as needed kind of in the way David Fletcher has done it, where Fletcher primarily plays second. He's played some third. Uh, the angels have toyed with him in the outfield. They haven't really done it. And he's filled in at short as needed. That's kind of the defensive profile we're looking at with McLean. It's it's second base or center field more than short, but he can really hit. He's got some thump for a little guy. Um, you, you see a player who can help you in a number of different ways in terms of hitting for average, a lot of doubles, maybe get to 10, 15 home runs if you really, really believe in the power. Versatile, can run a little bit. So I think people see him more in that 10 to 20 range. And while that's a good player, that's not typically the best college player on the West Coast. You think about, you know, Chris Bryant, the year he was the best college player on the West Coast, stuff like that. There's there's no one anywhere near that caliber this year, or even I would say even a caliber below that. So it is pretty down. There are a couple pitchers that are really good. Michael McGreevy at UC Santa Barbara and Ricky Tiedemann at Golden West Junior College. I don't know if this is the right podcast to expand on how awesome they are, but those are two pitchers a lot of people like and for good reason. Um, but there's no question. It's, it's a down year out West. And a lot of that's just the colleges are down, but even the high school talent outside of Marcella Mayer, it's a lot of guys who, you know, we like them. They do some good things, but it's not like a couple of years ago, the Hunter green draft where I believe uh, the 14 of the top 71 picks all came from the state of California. It was a mix of college and high school guys. There was upside, there was depth, there was everything. It's nowhere near that this year. Yeah, we uh, we all can't live in the Northeast like Ben. We're just overflowing with draft talent, both in terms of impact, quality, and depth. It's yeah, I'll, take, I'll, take the, I'll take the sunshine of SoCal over, uh, over the impact talent of the Northeast. No, but uh, we appreciate the comments on the draft. Um, I don't want to delve too much into draft talk unless you guys want to explore more i know minor uh or the minor league season is kind of at the forefront of everyone's minds but i wanted to open it up if there was anything you wanted to, to touch on ben can we talk about a college hitter who we do all like in henry davis yeah we should because uh, <laughs> yeah you go ahead and, and and talk about him but i've had some recent conversations that are are pretty loud about he Mr. sounds davis. he sounds awesome I mean, we're talking about these college guys who've been, you know, lukewarm type performers. And this guy's hitting 400 at Louisville as a catcher with power, with almost twice as many walks as strikeouts. He seems like a pretty complete offensive player. And he's a catcher and he's doing it at a really high level of performance right now. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable performance. He is uh, the fifth player that kind of rounds out our top five on the BA draft board right now, in addition to the top four that we've talked about really throughout this process. Right now, he's hitting 400, 526, 67. And like you said, Ben, he has 29 walks, 15 strikeouts. He's got really special pure bat-to-ball skills. He has a really good understanding of the strike zone. 
And what I think is kind of interesting too, is with the way we're going to value catchers in a few years, whenever, whenever the strike zone is determined electronically, any criticisms you could have of Henry Davis behind the plate right now, I feel like almost wouldn't really matter that much in a game where pitch framing is not going to have any value. I mean, he is a guy who has a 70 grade arm. It wouldn't be surprising if there are scouts who put 80 grade on his arm. Uh, going back to his high school days, he had a good reputation as a catch and throw guy. So I don't know exactly what the catchers are going to look like in the future, but I have to imagine it's going to be a lot more of those catch and throw guys who can block, call a game and hit, right? Like, what do you guys think about how catcher evaluation is going to um, steer in the next few years when, when we do have a different way of calling the zone? Yeah. I mean, offense is obviously always, always, always something teams want to feel good about when they're picking at the top of the draft, whether you're a catcher or not. And I think the fact that Davis provides that is, is a big part of him being as high up as he is and why some people consider him to be in this top group. Uh, in terms of the defense, I do think we will see, look, you still are going to have to be very athletic. You're still going to have to be a good receiver and just being able to handle the velocity and the big break on the breaking stuff in the major leagues. You're going to have to be athletic to go out and be an effective, you know, blocker and do all the things you have to do behind the plate. But I do think it'll be less about the receiving. Again, you're still going to have to be able to, you know, be quick back there. You're going to have to be able to get out of the crouch quickly. You're still going to have to have an arm. So you still have to be a good athlete back there. It's not like all of a sudden with the automatic strike zone, you can just be a big lug who sits back there. But um, I do think some of the finer points of receiving will be de-emphasized and, you know, maybe guys that say hey, he hits for average, he hits for power. He's athletic enough in terms of getting down his blocks when he needs and he can handle velocity. I mean, that's all still requires a ton of skill and there's still not that many people who can do it, but I do think it will open it up and we'll see more offense out of the catcher position because maybe some of the, the finer points of receiving demands won't be as strict as, as they are now. Josh, do you want to chime in? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's, it's huge. Every time you think about, oh, this guy steals strikes or this guy presents it really good for the umpire, well, it's not going to matter. It's absolutely not going to matter. You can, when no runners are on, you could let the ball hit your chest protector and you're going to get the same calls as you would, you know, if you framed it real nice and stuck it and brought it up or down or whatever. Not it, recommended, though. I mean, I don't know. It depends on what you're into. You get some style points maybe if you're doing that. All you your pitcher happy, might be pissed off. Happy but, Gilmore yeah. style. I was say, I'm, I'm, pic I'm picturing Happy Gilmore in the batting cage. <laughs> yeah, that's the Tim Locastro gif where it's, it's taking the ball off his chest. Like, more. Um, yeah, it, it even even if you would piss off your pitcher, it might take a little while. But like, I, we keep talking about it, and it's always in the back of my head. Like, it's just not going to matter because unless this is an abject failure in the uh, low A Southeast league this year, it's coming to the big leagues. When uh, do you think it comes? You think it comes that quick? Yeah. I mean, we're about now. to run into a new CBA. I imagine that's something that we'd, we'd start yeah, talking about, right? We're talking about Henry Davis. We're talking about Adrian, Adrian Del Castillo. I don't think it's going to matter for them. Um, we've already tested this in uh, the Atlantic league and the Arizona fall league. And it's been kind of recalibrated. I think JJ wrote about it. Um, and as long as it's not an absolute crap show in the minors this year, it's happening, man. Like, 
we're so we're getting it. So we're getting in the minor leagues in 2021. We were supposed to get Two, it last year. Yeah. Right. 2024. Do we have an automated strike zone I at the major leagues? 24. Oh, I, I would say yeah. I think, I think so. if we have, depending on what kind of season we have for 2022, maybe then. I would just. I just don't know. Like like Josh was saying, unless something terrible happens, I don't know what what the rationale would be for waiting. Like it's not like we're still waiting for the technology. I think it's just we're we're waiting to see if we can fine tune the technology to to get the strike zone that we want, right? Like a right. strike zone that's not really gonna break the game for the hitters or the pitchers. That that from my perspective, that seems to be what the the testing is all about. Just making sure we have a strike zone we're all happy with. That's not really gonna destroy like pitchers throwing a twelve six breaking ball that's hitting the the plate and called for a strike because it nicks the the front edge of a virtual strike zone but i mean catchers in general are typically the longest development players of any demographic and then when you're if you want to lump high school catchers in too which we haven't talked about but i mean even guys from last year's class like jeromo how is that going to affect his value as a player yeah i I kind of agree i i would think by 2024 we'd have it but curious what you guys think as well well i think a lot of it the kicker is how does it actually work this year? It's one thing to do it in the fall league. It's one thing to do it in the Atlantic league as an independent league. But now that we're doing it in affiliated baseball, there's going to be a lot more eyes on it. A lot more people are going to have opinions on it who are in positions of power, farm directors, assistant general managers, even general managers going down and seeing their guys. So I think it's hard to make a prediction of a year without seeing how it actually works. If it works well this year. Yeah. I can definitely see it coming by 2024 but if they go down and they realize there's a lot of issues with calibration there's a lot of balls being called strikes that probably shouldn't be or for whatever reason the technology just isn't ready or isn't up to par it's going to take a little while they're going to going to want to get this right although i say that and they clearly haven't figured out replay and they put that in so who knows I, i do think that a lot is going to hinge on how it works in the low A Southeast this year. I will say that if it works, I think they're going to move it up to double A and triple A before they move it to the majors. I don't think they're just going to do it one year in the low A Southeast and then be like, all right, we're bringing it to the majors. They're going to want to test it on a broader scale throughout the minors before bringing it to the majors. I think that's why it will probably be not next year, but more two to three. Maybe. I don't see what the difference would be in the double A or triple A, it's still a 17 inch plate. It's still baseball players. They're still humans. I don't think it matter a whole hell of a lot. Um, to your point that there's going to be more eyes on it. Well, insert Florida state league joke here where there is <laughs> absolutely no fair on it there. And to your other point that you, you get execs eyes on it. Well, execs go to the fall league too. Every single one of the teams go there and check out those guys. And it, it did have problems in the fall. It absolutely did. Uh, I wish I still had the video, but this, I saw one strike on Vidal Brujan, which was worse than anything anybody could dream up from Angel Hernandez or Joe West or whoever else. It was something, you know, Ray Charles wouldn't call, and he's dead and blind. Was and that the was, one where the guy got, where he got tossed well, for arguing with the robot up? That was Jalen Miller, I think. It was okay. either Dylan Miller or Jacob Hayward, one of those two generals. How would the robot ump handle players getting hit by a pitch in the strike zone? It's just a strike, right? Yeah. Oh, Carlos, a specialty. <laughs> umpire gets uh, 
to talk about that. He's, he's not rendered a statue at that point. Like he is a human being with eyes and feelings. Although so I you're saying they're still going to call it a hit by yeah. pitch. The, and the have a still, hit by pitch in the strike zone with Robles. The, umpire, the umpires will still have some discretion here, but because they're the one one trick that is, I don't think they can really uh, technology out is the rare occasion where it's like fifty foot curveball that somehow bounces through the strike zone. That would technically be called a strike by a Robo ump, uh, but you know home plate ump will say no, no, no. No, we're not playing that you know you're 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 staying here that's a ball but that that is going to be a, a, a thing for umps too like i feel like if you don't have the, the home plate um doesn't have ball strike duties he runs a major risk of kind of semi falling asleep back there yeah josh how many calls how many calls on average is a, a home plate umpire making that's not related to ball strikes or just strikes in general and foul I think you're tip. onto something there foul tip foul ball down the lines uh plays at the plate is the home plate ump making foul ball down the line calls yeah uh once once you get i believe they're still their duty before it gets past first and third interesting that's their duty once it gets past first and third it's the respective base ump and in the playoffs it's the the line umpire um but yeah they they make those calls make calls at the plate fair foul said foul tip and he plays at the plate obstruction interference your favorite hit by the ball in the strike zone yeah all those fun things so there's been a great great segment of umpire philosophy and uh analysis with josh norris well if i I have if i have the fifth overall pick in the draft and henry davis is there i'm psyched well i'm taking the robo you're you're taking him over sal frelick ben oh yeah yeah i I, and look i I like sal frelick but I, i think henry davis has more he, he's obviously not as just as a catcher, he's not going to play as regularly or as frequently as, as Sal Freelich will in center field. But maybe uh, when we get the DH in every league, that will not be an issue anymore. Uh, maybe, but I, I feel like you know, you still need to, those guys take have so much wear and tear on their bodies. They just, they just need some time off from Let's just combine the two rules and make the home play dumps the DHs for every team. Horrible yeah. idea, Josh. Vetoed next. Yeah, you're really, really making it tough to invite you back on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, what I'd say with Davis, I mean, he's he's a really, really good player, and just talking to some officials. I mean, Carlos, you've talked about it. There isn't really, or there hasn't been a clear cut number one for a lot of this process. There's been some back and forth. You know, lighter Roller, at, lighter Lawler at times. Rocker's been in that mix too. There's some who see Marcelo Mayer kind of in the same tier. And, and now Davis is seen in the same tier. The, the big three has kind of become the big five in a lot of ways. And I, I do feel like, you know, we talk about catchers and catcher defense. You made the comment about Drew Romo. For catchers like that, the answer becomes you have to hit. The idea of this of the great defensive catcher who's going to get to the majors solely on that. I mean, yes, you can still really, really impress with how you handle pitchers just in terms of the mental side of the game, you know, game calling, game planning, preparation, that's all still going to be big. As I mentioned, being athletic enough to, you know, block, is going to be big, you know, being able to just handle the insane velocity we're seeing in Major League Baseball. A lot of catchers in minor league levels struggle with velo. That's a big separator for some of them. So all those things are still going to be important, but you, you always have to hit as a prospect to really climb and carve out a major league career, but we've seen at times catchers can be accepted a little bit, not the guys who ever end up becoming, you know, long-term starters, but, you know, think of Anthony Bemboom as a guy who never, ever hit in the minors, 
And now he's bounced around in the major leagues in part because he, you know, he receives so well. I don't know if that guy gets to the majors anymore. Not that again, Anthony Bumboom is playing a significant number of games, but I mean, you're going to have to hit. And I don't really think that's a bad thing. We've talked about offense and how it's declining all across the game and catcher offense has just completely cratered. And I do think it would be nice to see more guys who can actually handle the bat. And if that means that they're catchers who can hit, and as long as they do the basics that you need to do as a catcher, I think that's actually a positive thing for the game. Yeah, I, I'm kind of with you. I'm, I'm all here for loafs behind the plate who mash and just have like <laughs> cannon arms and rely on their pitchers to get them the ball clip quickly and really handle the running game just with arm strength. So I think that would be let me refreshing. Let me introduce you to uh, Alejandro Kirk. There you go. Tell me about of the him. Toronto Blue Jays organization. <laughs> yes. not, the, not the prettiest guy behind the plate, but he can hit, man. Don't care. Don't care. He can really he can hit. hit. You still have to block. I mean, you can't be a total loaf. Like, I mean, you still can't be allowing wild pitches and pass balls like crazy. Sure, sure. You can't. You definitely can't just let everything. You you can't be someone who's never caught before and just find yourself behind the plate because you can hit. (laughs) There is still a a threshold you have to clear for defensive ability. But when you go from receiving is the number one trait and skill set we're looking for to okay, now, now we can have a guy who hitting is really the priority. And can he, you just open a much larger pool of catchers who can clear that threshold. And so you're naturally going to get a lot, a lot better bats in that group of players. So I think we'll see the defensive priority shift to again, blocking and more again, some of the, you know, the game calling, you know, preparation like that, that's going to be the priority. And those again are, are definitely prioritized game calling, especially, but I think that, yeah, if we do see the defensive priorities become, again, blocking, you know, side-to-side agility, ability to get out of the crouch quickly, you know, strong, accurate arm, and and game calling over just some of the pure receiving stuff, I do think that will open it up and, again, hopefully lead to some more offense because some, of some of the catchers, what they're hitting, and yet they continue to start games at the major league level, it's it's rough. Do you think there's other catchers in this draft that that thought process will will benefit, Carlos? Yeah, I think so. I mean, even for the guys that we've talked about right now, they all have defensive questions, right? So I think anytime you're talking about lowering that bar you need to clear for your defense, it's only going to help those guys if you're split if you're split on a player catching in the current environment, I imagine you had to feel a little bit better about them catching in an environment where, where pitch framing is like Josh was saying, literally not valuable anymore. So I, I do think that helps them because if you can, like you were saying with Del Castillo, if he's a guy who in a pitch framing world, maybe he wouldn't catch. Well, now you need to hit for more impact to profile at a first base or a corner outfield spot. But if you can catch to the level necessary in a game that's beyond or or involving robo ohms again i don't think that the bar for your power or your impact production is going to be high so i do think it helps those guys maybe you can be a little bit more confident that you're going to get a valuable player that you can put at catcher because again i just think the defensive requirement is lowered so much and like kyle was saying it's not that we're putting first baseman behind the plate it's not like you don't have to have any value at all there but i just think it 
it makes it a little bit easier to both profile there as a regular defensively and have your bat profile at, at the caliber of like an everyday player. But I'm just kind of scrolling through our list now to see if there are any catchers who are like defensive savants. Well, so, so you or- say we're not putting first baseman behind the plate, but actually the reason I ask about that is because there is a first baseman who I think somebody for this reason might put behind the plate. And that's at Vanderbilt, Dominic Keegan, yeah. who has so well, he has caught before. Right. He has yeah. caught before. He he had an injury and he hasn't been catching for Vanderbilt recently. And he, and he didn't catch last summer either. CJ Rodriguez is a very good catcher who's catching there right now. Right. So look, I, I understand like I, I you know, I don't have an evaluation of Dominic Keegan as a catcher because I don't know how you could <laughs> uh, you know unless you maybe you've seen him in a a workout or, or something like that but I, I don't know if that's really been happening but look Vanderbilt's going to do what's best for Vanderbilt to win games right now and they're trying to win a national championship and Dominic Keegan is hitting 359 450 641 uh, he's got a pretty simple swing he gets on base he hits for power um, but is that going to be enough as a first baseman? Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more skepticism there from scouts, but okay. Maybe if we squint and hope that, you know, he can go back behind the plate and, and be just adequate enough back there to do that. Could that help somebody like him? Or, or I think back to last year too, when the Brewers took uh, Xavier Warren, I, I was Michigan. literally about to bring his name up. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah just, you know, Xavier Warren was a you know a third round pick of the Brewers last year. Obviously, there was, um, you know, the, the, everything kind of squashed the college season last year. I, I still kind of like him if he goes to, you know, he was an infielder. If he goes back to, you know, third base, I think there's some safety net fallback options for him there because I think his bat could be good enough and his, his defense uh, as an infielder, it's you know it's stretched thin at, at shortstop. I think he has the tools to be a a good defender at third base too. So I, I did like that pick for them. But I you know I, I think part of the calculation could be okay. Well, if 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 the automated strike zone does come, then yeah, maybe maybe he he doesn't need to be quite as good defensively as as he would otherwise yeah. without it. I mean, I I think this is all right. I just think what you're going to ask a catcher to do just opens the door for all of these types of players. Teams will be more willing to get creative with a player who maybe has a limited defensive profile out in the field and either has catching experience, like in Keegan's case, or you could see um, the tools necessary for him to maybe figure it out when you don't have to be this like unbelievable receiver and pitch framer. So yeah, I I would imagine that most teams would get a little bit more creative. And and like I was saying earlier, cast, a little bit bigger of a net for, for players who might profile as catchers. So I think so, that's right. So if I were to ask you guys, what is the slash line for catchers in the major leagues right now this year? What would you guess it is? Do, you, do we know the league average one just so I can be in the... I was going to say, I, prob- I would probably, whatever my guess would be is probably going to end up being like the league average. <laughs> yeah. This year. Is the league hitting like 245 right now or something like that? Let me pull it up just so we're through through uh, today's date. Give me one second. 
Did you ask us the question and not have the answer? <laughs> no, 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 no. I've got the catcher answer. I, oh, okay, uh, okay. You asked you ask about the entire league. The entire yeah, league right now this is This might be batting. cheating, but let's get the league average. and then. Yeah, guess. so the entire league right now is average, is hitting 234, 310, oh 392. This is horrible. <laughs> That's as of May 3rd. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay. We have guys just like coming at like Justin Lawrence throwing like <laughs> – yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't blame the hitters. I understand why. Yeah, that was one of my uh, my because prospect cheese ball. That was one of my prospect cheese ball guys. I remember seeing him at Lancaster. And I saw him in the fall league, and it was disgusting. I actually posted a video of him one night from the fall league. You know, it was 98, 98, 85 slider. Good night. I mean, it was just dominant stuff. And then I, he got hurt and he kind of fell by the wayside a little bit. But seeing him reemerge this year, I was like, yeah, that. That is why I thought this guy had a chance to be an impact reliever in Major League Baseball when I saw him down in Lancaster. That guy, that guy's a freak. But going back to this, yeah. So the Major League average here as we record the afternoon of May 3rd is 234, 310, 392. So what do you think catchers are at? Okay. So what's the OBP for league average? Three, uh, what was it? 310. Okay, so we're talking about a sub 300 OBP for catchers, I'm assuming, conservatively. I'm guessing their average is around like 200. I'm going to say like 200, 285, 360. Uh, You're actually actually more pessimistic. 285 on base with a three... I guess I didn't listen to Carlos, so I probably should have taken that feedback (laughs) into account. Uh, Maybe like a 360 slug. I think you said exactly what I said. I? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Josh, you have a guess? Uh, I'll go like 190. Two- one, did you, Kyle said I was pessimistic. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just going well, I guess back- he didn't say you were wrong. I'm just going back to the idea that the other day we had 57 hitters hitting sub 200 in a, in a day with about a half slate game, half slate of games. So I'm thinking maybe. You know, like I said, 190, 200, 230, 290. Well, how many numbers in a slash line? <laughs> oh, oh, 190 to 200 for the average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. I have okay. special slash All line. right, what is it, Kyle? I say you guys, you guys are more pessimistic than, uh, than even I am. So catchers are hitting 222, 304, 380. Wow, I'm actually stunned the OBP is above 300 still if the league is 310. There's, I, I guess we overestimated the separation between position groups, or at least I did. I mean, there's still, there's still, you know, across the board, you know, ten points or so worse. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not great across yeah. the league. It's I think not my, great for my range right now. Wide. So but, I mean, there's still five to ten points across the board worse. But it, yeah, it's. I mean, in any case, it's not great. Since since we're talking about just the environment, the offensive environment in Major League Baseball, I feel like we have to bring them up. I mean, it's because of. It's because of Jacob DeGrom. It's his fault. We were going to talk about him positively, but now I think we've flipped it into a negative conversation about him. He's really ruining baseball. You know what? I, I want to rant here for a second. Do it. <laughs> that, Let's go. I know that's sarcasm, but if you think the best pitcher on the planet is ruining baseball, go watch basketball. Like I, I, I think he was just being sorry yeah, that was sarcasm that, that's I, I why know, i just I laughed know, yeah, I he got sorry. it out of the way i know i know this is josh josh is not shouting at me here he's shouting at a wall and shouting at people who who have this take on twitter unironically it's just well, like, old man yells at cloud old man yells at pitcher old man <laughs> velocity it's like 
I understand some of the hitting approaches these days are not, you know, what should be taught for everyone. Well, I actually one, want to kind of talk about that too, but I'll let you continue. But I think it, we should it, I want like, to talk about I, I that. That's part of it. But the part, other part of it is that I'll say it again. Pitchers are wizards. The, these the, the pick the bottom of the barrel pitcher that's coming out of a bullpen these days, and he'd be Cy Young in the seventies. Like, these guys are absolute sorcerers. You, Justin Lawrence, major league debut. He's making 101 dance. Shane McClanahan, 101 two-seamer. People would have been burned at the stakes for things like this like 50 years ago. These players are witches. Of course it's tough to hit. Everybody blows 95 to 100 these days. 91, 90, you're, you may as well be you know, in a men's league. Okay, oh, that's a, that's a little bit of exaggeration. The major, the major, the, ma- the major league average fastball is ninety is about ninety three. Saying everyone throws ninety five is not ninety three would have been freaking amazing like thirty years ago. It's nuts where we are with velocity, and right. we can teach it now. Right now, Jacob Degrom um, per baseball savant is averaging ninety eight point nine miles per hour with his fastball. Um, and he also just seems to have the ability to put it wherever he wants, whenever he wants, as we record this, he's got, as if you guys listening to this, don't know that DeGrom has been excellent this year. He's got a 0.51 ERA through 35 innings and five starts. He struck out 59 batters and walked four. He has a 760 ERA plus, which is insane. Obviously it's a small sample, but his, his career high is 218 just to give that number for some context if you guys aren't really familiar with just era plus generally and still he is two and two in pitcher win loss well, right. so he's not good say, enough the, 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 the mets are two and three in his starts which just tells you a lot about the mets right he has the insane ability to pitch so well that he strikes out his own hitters it's really bad like for 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 mets fans i know we have a, we have one in our slack who i'm pretty sure has had you know mental breakdowns every five days or so when he sees Jacob DeGrom lose one nothing or two. I mean, if that's Matt's reaction, I can't imagine what's going on through DeGrom's head when he just carves up an entire lineup for nine innings and then loses. <laughs> I used to know a guy who went bananas when like that stuff would happen in the Grapefruit League. So I, <laughs> I can't even imagine what a real fan thought during like just seeing this happen over and over and over again to DeGrom. Just, you know, if they started looking like uh, ZZ Top, they'd wind up looking like me. they pull out all their hair at this point. I feel bad for DeGrom, but there's another offshoot. I don't, I don't feel that bad for him. I, I do. <laughs> I, I feel like um, there's another aspect to talk to about DeGrom, and I think it's m- maybe the, the least talked about part, or it should be talked about more when it comes to evaluating pitchers, and that is simply his athleticism. Like, that... I think he's like the number one thing that should be talked about more in pitchers because he's so athletic, he can repeat his delivery more frequently. And that's why he can command the stuff he has so well. I think that's where you start to find your true separators for certain guys. Do you think him being a two-way guy, a shortstop before he started focusing on pitching is any way tied to that athleticism or do you just think guys who are as athletic as him just generally have the ability to do both at a younger level? Like, like, would you be more encouraged by a pitcher projecting them forward because they were a conversion guy or, or a two-way guy? Like, 
I mean, we've talked about guys in this draft class. We've talked about Mason Wynn. How much does the conversion or the two-way factor um, affect all of your, uh, I guess, just evaluations or thoughts on pitchers? Go ahead, Josh. That's why I love Max Meyer so much. Like, I adore Max Meyer. I mean, the slider is, you know, a bat out of hell. But the fact that he is so athletic really makes me think he has a really, really high ceiling, higher than even, you know, would be expected for someone who was the number three overall pick in the draft. That's, we talk about command a lot. And I think you have a better shot of commanding the baseball if you can control your body, which comes with athleticism. So that's my little rant on why Jacob deGrom is, you know, a wizard. Tyler, Ben, did you have anything you wanted to add on this one? Yeah, I mean, I think with the conversion guys, it's something you definitely take note of. And I think you maybe give some bonus points a little bit just in terms of, hey, generally means they're you know pretty good athlete, maybe a little bit of a fresher arm. But I don't necessarily penalize the guys who aren't conversion guys. I think, you know, you look at some guys, obviously Jacob deGrom is, is a star beyond stars on the mound. And yeah, I mean, his background as a shortstop has definitely played a part in that. Um, but, you know, you look at Clayton Kershaw or Max Scherzer and Garrett Cole, and those guys are pretty much pitchers only, and they've been just fine as well. So, I mean, I think it just comes down to evaluating the player for what he does well, what he's good at. And in the case of the conversion guys, again, I, it's definitely something to note. And I think I, I think of it more as like that bonus as opposed to necessarily being like, oh, this guy, you know, he's only been a pitcher and, and banging him for it. Yeah, and with and with Degrom too, the conversion happened with him when he was in college too. And and typically, we talk about conversion guys. We're talking about a catcher with a big arm, or 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 you know some position player with a big arm who couldn't hit and ends up in the bullpen because they Kenley throw Jansen. hard. Yeah, yeah, can't you know those kind of guys like Jason Ma, like other guys like that who you know Pedro Baez. Guys like that, you know, I don't know if I would describe him as athletic, but like, you know, it's Trevor uh, Rosenthal's another guy, and Trevor Hoffman's obviously the most famous one. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, so you have those guys who, you know, in Hoffman's case, he had a pretty good secondary pitch, but like, you know, usually it's throw hard, and then you know they can power through a, a slider or, or something like that. But, but Degrom is, I mean. I don't know. He might, he might be on a hall of fame track. It's, it's amazing to see him do it and come into it as a starting pitcher. And, and yeah, like, like we're saying this stuff that he has right now, it's unbelievable. Not just the, the velocity, but again, like Josh was talking about the athleticism or, or the body control. I don't, I don't think you need to be a, a super, super athlete to be a pitcher, but, but having good body control definitely helps you, repeat your delivery and having that athleticism, I think helps you make adjustments on the mound uh, or adjustments also with your delivery when you're getting out of whack or or getting out of sync. Uh, And and even, even just, I think DeGrom had a ground ball the other day and he was like sprinting down the line. He's, I don't know exactly what kind of a runner he is on the 2080 scale, but he's gotta be, he's gotta be up there just as far as his pure, pure foot speed but the the fastball and then he's throwing these like low 90s sliders i mean we, we, we watch pitchers who pitch now like we're watching guys for the draft who are sitting 
in the low nineties with their fastballs. So, so who, far this year, like. Ben, by the way, his, his sprint speed running percentile is 83.5. Have you guys seen what he's doing it's at insane. the plate, by the way? So Jacob, yeah, DeGrom, I was just looking to pull those numbers. Yeah, up. He, so he, oh yeah. Well, he's hitting 462, which again, really small samples, but he's six for 13 move over. Otani, I mean, a double. I mean, he's had a hit in all but one start first start two for three. One for two, one for two, two for four. That game against the Nationals where he basically said, forget this, I'll do it myself and drove in a run. I mean, like, yes, this guy's an incredible athlete. And it's interesting. There's been definitely, again, there was always, I want to say a desire, but people obviously liked having the guys who were conversion, had shown the ability to play shortstop or, or another position at a high level. But even when Tony Gonsolin was coming up in the Dodgers system, a lot of people talked about they really liked the athleticism because he was a two-way guy in college, mostly an outfielder at St. Mary's. And then sometimes he would close. Sometimes he would do kind of the multi-inning long relief role. Other times he was a spot starter. And that's just another case of, hey, he's a really good athlete. In this case, he was more of a two-way guy there. And uh, eventually they said, you know, if he's just focusing only on pitching, that 92, 93 might take up to 95, 96. And it has. And I'm hearing more about that every single year, the success of DeGrom. And again, not that Tony Gonsolin is anywhere near the level of that, but just seeing other guys start to have some success too. People are definitely starting to look at that a little more. In the Padre system, for example, there's a pitcher named Reese Kinnear who was a middle infielder, but mostly a DH at Fordham while also being a, a top-notch starter in their rotation for a couple of years. And, you know, people talk about that with him. Hey, you know, two-way guy in college, you know, mound only now the stuff ticks up. There's more and more of those guys floating around. There definitely has been, it seems like a general trend in the draft because in high school, pretty much all the best players play both ways, but it's in college where if you're playing the infield, playing the outfield and pitching, that's really impressive. Clayton Andrews in the Brewer system, another guy who, you know, is all of five foot six, but He's got some ability to pitch as a lefty. And oh, by the way, on the days he didn't pitch at Long Beach State, he was their starting center fielder and leadoff hitter. And, you know, look at him now, despite his lack of size, he's actually made it up into the upper minors and he's doing pretty well for himself. We're 10 episodes into the podcast, and I can't believe I think that's now the second time we've referenced Clayton Andrews, I believe. I mean, <laughs> he, he is a yeah, like Kyle said, he's a He's he's going to get to the major leagues as a relief pitcher and I think probably some type of a defensive specialist because he is a he is a really good defensive outfielder too. Well, and you were talking about some of the guys at the lower levels, Kyle. I mean, right now on our draft board, the highest ranked um, high school right-handed pitcher entered the the draft cycle as a shortstop. I mean, that's Jackson Job. He was a two-way guy, like you said. A lot of these guys are always playing multiple positions at their high school because they're just generally the most talented player on the team, but. Job just is a, a very good athlete and he has, he's kind of an exciting combination because he has the athleticism and the body control that you guys are all talking about with these guys who, who often do play multiple positions, but he also has exceptional um, natural ability to spin a baseball, which is, those are two things right there that are, are very, very hard to teach. And then with the progression that he's made this spring and the reports we're getting on just his tool grades, the stuff, the control, now that he's just focusing on pitching, I can't imagine kind of what level he's going to jump to once he gets into um, like a player development system that can, can really take what he does and expand on that. Uh, it's really exciting to think about. I, I yeah. want to go back to the 
Oh, Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Ben. Well, I was going to say, I actually want to go back to DeGrom real quick. Do you guys think he's on a Hall of Fame path? Uh, that's been written about a little bit. What do you I mean, guys think? I don't understand. Yeah, of course. I think so. But I, I think also it's interesting to think about how Hall of Fame voters are grappling with like usage rates of modern starters and how like their stats just aren't going to look like uh, starting pitchers in, in previous eras. So I understand how comparing them is difficult and we have to kind of have a new, uh, I guess, threshold or, or, or new sample size of, of wins and innings uh, to compare them to. But I mean, how many years would you guys say DeGrom has been either considered the best or a top three pitcher in the league? I mean, it's been several years now. And if you look at his eight year career now, he's got a 2.55 ERA. He has uh, a 154 ERA plus. I mean, his numbers are absurd and I understand that he started later, but he's already had, I, I think he already should be considered. I know he, people are kind of talking about he needs to do more, but I, I mean, I think so. Well, I think one of the biggest kickers here is I went back and looked at this. So he's won two sign awards. There are 10 pitchers in major league history that have won three sign awards. Seven of them are in the hall of fame. One is Roger Clemens, who is not in the Hall of Fame for reasons that have nothing to do with what he accomplished on the field. And the other two are Clayton Kershaw and Max Scherzer, who will be in the Hall of Fame. If you get three Cy Young Awards, you pretty much have a ticket to the Hall of Fame. So I think if he gets this third one, I think it becomes, yeah, he's getting in. And in terms of the fact that, you know, he hasn't pitched as long because he didn't come up and make his debut until he was 26 there's a couple different ways this could go. Uh, you know, there've been people who have talked about, you know, Randy Johnson didn't become Randy Johnson as we know him until pretty much, I mean, his age 20, his age 26 season, if you want to go the earliest, that's really when that started. But, you know, even his age, you know, 29 season is when he took that huge jump into striking out, you know, 300 batters a year and figuring out his control. So, he really just dominated throughout his thirties and into his early forties. And that's what made him a hall of fame pitcher in a lot of ways. So that's one path for DeGrom. But I think the other path, interestingly, is actually look back at Sandy Koufax, who only pitched 12 years, you know, got hurt and, and was done by age 30. Obviously DeGrom's going to be a little older, but Koufax only pitched 12 years, but he got the three signing awards. His ERA was 2.76. I mean, if DeGrom, even if he, isn't able to keep pitching until he's 39, 40, 41. Let's say all he does get is another four years of, of high level of performance pitching. So that brings him to say it's 37 season. If he's at 12 seasons and his ERA is, you know, in the two fives as it is now, and he has three signing awards, I think he gets in. And, and I kind of look at that Koufax example, Koufax example as kind of the barometer there. Ben and Josh. Well, yeah, I, I think if he does get that third Cy Young Award, just based on the voting history that Kyle mentioned, he, I, I think he will. I don't even think the the three Cy Young Awards is the, like, I on it'll be great to get it, and I do think that would cement him in, but I don't, I don't feel like it should be the thing that cements him in, because how many years into Clayton Kershaw's career was it when people were already, like, throwing him in as a shoe in for the Hall of Fame? Because... If you look at Jacob DeGrom's eight-year career and you compare that to the first eight years of Kershaw's career, that takes him to through 2015. And I, I don't know for sure, but 
I believe at that point, people were already enshrining him in the Hall of Fame. The numbers are very, very similar. Um, and they're pitching in a similar era. I mean, through that period, Clayton Kershaw had a 2.43 ERA, 154 ERA plus. DeGrom is, again, 2.55 ERA, 154 ERA plus. DeGrom actually has better strikeout and walk rates per nine. Now, again, DeGrom is pitching more of those innings in an environment where the strikeouts have gone up generally. So maybe that's not a, a direct comparison or, or as direct a comparison as I'm making, but I really don't know what else. If, if he couldn't play another game, I really don't know why he wouldn't be in the hall, I guess is, is the point I want to make. But Josh, you haven't commented. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, basically, I was going to say, if he wins that third Cy Young and then gets hit by a bus, I think he's still in the Hall of Fame. Um, he's So you also think he needs it, though, to get in? I don't think he needs that. He, wouldn't be, he wouldn't be eligible. He, what? Uh <laughs> Don't you need the you need the ten years? Well, there's a there has been one notable exception. I think it would apply. Uh, Get rid of that rule. Come on. All right. Well, let's say it's not a bust. <laughs> let's say it's a, an injury. All right. Yeah. yeah that, let's let's say he has play. like a Pujols finish for the next couple of years and is just nothing like. Let's say as of right now he has three horrible years to end his career. Do you guys think he gets in if he if he no. clears whatever the minimum threshold is? Do you think no. he gets in? And do you think? Two questions. Does he get in and should he get in? Because those are very separate questions. I would say I don't know for the first one because I don't think I, I know the, the Hall of Fame voting body well enough to, to say confidently. And my answer to the second one would be a, a definite yes, he should be in. So, so you, you, Carlos, you said you think if he never pitches another game, he gets in. I, I don't agree with that. There's a lot of pitchers who have had, you know, really 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 good four and five year runs it's eight years check out kevin brown's kevin brown is sort of an interesting case here because he had a peak that was really 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 excellent now he obviously didn't win the sang awards and some of that was because who he was but it's not by. even a peak though it's 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 not like he's had a bunch of years where he was bad it's every he's year he's taken a new jump these excellent. last four but he's had taken a new jump these last four these he last had two four seasons years. above a three era of the eight <laughs> and I they agree. were 3.04 no, been... and 3.53 and he's still way better than uh league average 17 32 percent better than league average those it's his worst years he's been excellent the entire way there's no question but these last four years as are what have jumped him into hall of fame consideration yeah, winning the two signing awards and i should make ERA it clear i'm, I'm arguing right now that he should be not that he will be because again like i said i don't know the voting body i don't have a vote i think a lot of the way they compare pitchers nowadays to pitchers in in a different era just doesn't really make sense to me but i'm just saying like adamantly that he absolutely should be i mean he's he's literally breaking the game right now we've joked about it earlier but no no one can do anything again like he's been the most dominant pitcher in baseball for past two years certainly in the past four or five years he's been in the conversation of the best pitchers in the game and his entire career he's been nothing but excellent i don't I don't know what the standard is. Like, it's just a hall of like very long careers for very good at that point for me. But maybe I'd I'm more longe of a, longevity is important though. I know longevity it is, but is a I, big I, part I, of I'm this. more of a peak guy too. And again, it's not just a peak argument for Degrom. It's not like he hasn't always been good. I think he, I think he will get in, and it's it's amazing to see the way he's aged. I mean, he got this late start relatively to the big leagues at 26. He's 33 now, and he's throwing harder than ever with a ridiculous slider it, it feels like, like justin verlander maybe from from a few years ago when he was 
the best pitcher in the game into his, you know, early to, to mid thirties. So I, I hope he can kind of keep up that same type of trajectory. Cause this is 33 is usually the age or even before then when you're, when your body starts to slow down and things tend to break and atrophy and he seems to have the exact opposite thing happening to him, which is, is pretty incredible. So I, I think he needs, he, he does need more seasons to be more bulk to, I think, get there. I don't think he's in right now. If he does get that third Cy Young this year, that, that might clinch it for him. He's at, I mean, he's at under just under 40 career wins above replacement on, on B ref, you know, typically the cutoff is around 60. I don't know that he gets there, but I don't know that he needs to. And and I think probably the way that we evaluate starting pitchers for the hall of fame needs to change because we're just not having guys throwing consistent, you know, we're not doing two- the same jobs. Yeah. It's, it's, you don't have guys throwing 250, 300 innings anymore, or, or even just throwing, you know, throwing that at the velocities that pitchers are, are throwing today and, and holding up over 200 plus innings consistently for, for over a decade to be able to compile that kind of value for, for their careers. So yeah, like I, I don't want to see like a short, like a, a really short peak guy. Like I, I wouldn't want to put like a carry wood suddenly in, in the hall of fame, but uh, I, I do think our standards probably need to come down for what constitutes a, a Hall of Fame pitcher. I actually think like Felix Hernandez, uh, he technically hasn't retired yet, but yeah, I'm sure he will before DeGrom will probably be a, a good test of that. Because to me, Felix Hernandez seems like a Hall of Famer to me based on what he did. But does he actually get to that, you know, performance cut off just because of how how his career ended the way it, it or you know just has kind of fallen off the way it, it has as he's gotten into his 30s I, I I don't know but to me I, I think I think he's a hall of famer and, and I think DeGrom as long as he continues to pitch like a, a frontline guy over over the next couple of years even, even if it falls maybe a little bit short of what we would historically look at for a pitcher to be a hall of famer probably probably should end up being there too. Cause I just think our standards are going to need to change for what we, what we consider to be a, a hall of fame pitcher. Gosh, I'm, I'll uh, throw it to you for the final word. Cause I can trust you to be succinct and then we can uh, get into some minor league stuff. Uh, yeah. I would say number one, I wanted to push back on an earlier point, just real quick. Uh, the greatest conversion guy is not Trevor Hoffman. It's Babe Ruth. Uh, uh, second of all, did you see him? Say what? Did you ever see him? Oh yeah, you know, Josh I coached, is like very old, so I, I wouldn't surprise him if you grew up watching him. My son. Um. Anyway, um. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty simple. If he continues to do what he's doing for even a little longer, then yeah, he'll get in, uh, unless something weird happens. Uh, yeah. I'll vote for him. I know that when I get, I think it's seven years. I think Kyle is the closest to a vote, correct? They're letting oh, yeah. guys like you vote in the Hall of Fame. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Screw I, Josh. I, I, I'd seriously 
question whether I would actually vote, but I will have that power in seven years. Yeah, I get mine in uh, 2025 because I joined the BBWA. My first year on that Potter's beat was 2015. So I get mine in 2025. Yeah, no, I will vote for Jacob. You know, like like Josh and Ben have said, if he just does what he's doing a little little longer and I have every reason to believe he will, he's incredible. He will get in the Hall of Fame, get that third song award. If he keeps doing this, you know, another one, two, three seasons or beyond, he'll get in and he deserves to be in. Where, where are you at on Madison Bumgarner? Uh, I honestly have not looked at it that much. That's, that's an that's, interesting that's one. The one. That's the one to me where I think it's going to be like our generation's Jack Morris, <laughs> where it's like you had to be there to see him yeah. do it. I mean, what he did in that 2014 World Series remains one of the most incredible things I've ever seen from a pitcher. But I also get it. It's going to be tough for a guy who has never won a signing award, has, you know, his ERA plus, that, that 117 number is kind of where Felix is. And that's a really, really, really good career, but it's not where you see some of the hall of famers. And you look at a lot of the, you know, the black ink, gray ink, all the you know various hall of fame trackers. And he's, he's pretty short. Um, let, let's see what he does the rest of his career. As crazy as it sounds, Madison Bumgarner's 31 years old. He's actually not that old. He's just been around forever. So if he comes out and we've seen him pitch well, these last couple starts for the diamondbacks, if he gets back on track and puts together another, quality five six seven years then i think we can start talking about it but i think right now as incredible as what he did in the 2014 postseason and really all postseasons have been i think it's hard to say oh this guy's definitely a hall of famer when you just look at kind of the hall of fame standard for other pitchers all right with that let's pivot into some minor league talk because uh that initially was the point of this podcast, but it's been a fun conversation. <laughs> uh, we like to go uh, into rabbit holes and just kind of go where the conversation leads us. So it's not a bad thing, but um, I guess I just want to throw it around to you guys. What are you most excited for about the minor league season being back? It can be a prospect. It can be uh, just the emotions that are evoked within you when you step into a minor league stadium. It can be anything that you want it to be. Just what are you most excited about since it's been, I don't know. When, when was the last time you guys were at a minor league game? 2019 some sometime, right? Okay, so we'll start with you, Kyle. What are you most excited for for this minor league season? This is going to be extraordinarily generic. I think just having baseball back. So many people across the country love the game and just don't have access to a major league baseball game. They're just too far away geographically. And the minors are really their only in-person connection they can make to professional baseball. And I think that's important. And I think it's incredibly valuable. And it's something that bonds a lot of families together. So I think just having baseball back on this scale, professional baseball back on this scale, I think is is just something that I'm I'm happy. More, I don't know if excites where I'm just happy that you know, people across the country are able to go back and watch the teams they love in the places they love to congregate with their communities. Josh, how about you? Uh, selfishly, it's having a sense of purpose again. <laughs> I say that without any air of sarcasm. Like, I have not known what to do with myself for the last, however long this has been, 14-something months. I don't care about the major leagues the same way Kyle does because I don't have a team that I root for or 
there's no real team around here to go cover if I really wanted to. I don't cover the draft like you guys do very much. I mean, it's Del Castillo conversation aside. I do the minor leagues and it hasn't been here for <laughs> 14 months. The last professional baseball game I went to was the 2019 Arizona Fall League. And that was September, I want to say, no, October, I want to say 15th, yes, October 15th, 2019 was the last time I was at a professional game. It's been a long freaking time. I want to go see what these prospects look like. I want to see the guys that I don't know about right now, who we will we'll be talking about in a year's time. I want to you know, see some of my scout friends again. I want to sit there and listen. To, well, we're not going to get the mascot dances, but I want to hear uh, Wagon Wheel played to the end of infinity. <laughs> Which uh, version, though? Both of them. I tweeted the other day. I heard it at the PDP event in Cary. Like, now it's baseball season. Yeah. It was the, uh, the old Crow Medicine Show version. I really love the Darius Rucker version. And I'm going to get hate fine. for that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I want to hear Party in the USA again for some reason. <laughs> Imagine Dragons. Have, have you sunk yeah. that low? Uh, it's, it is funny. Like, I was at that event. And it's like, they haven't changed their playlist. Someone still thinks their tractor is sexy. <laughs> it's pretty amazing yeah all of that stuff uh, i want to hear i want to go to winston-salem and hear ice cream and cake played over and over again i don't know if it's in the protocols but i want to see greensboro i want to see the bat dogs again i want to see ridiculous performances by guys i've never heard of and will probably never hear from again and dang it i want when we're doing these rankings i want to have some sort of meaningful context to put these in because uh, this is kind of inside baseball America, I guess. Uh, it's been extraordinarily hard to do these rankings the last 14 months, when it, whether it's the handbook or guys graduating from the top 100. We've had probably 15 guys graduate from the top 100 since the beginning of the major league season. And trying to find the guys to replace them is extraordinarily difficult when you are trying to figure out what sample sizes in big league spring training means what they mean in minor league spring training what you're talking about from 2019 i mean there are guys who you know are going to be in the upper levels this year who haven't played outside of the complex ball so when we're putting you know next ups on there boy is it you do so you kind of have a you, you gulp and you swallow and you say all right don't make me look stupid uh because someone has to go on there, but we haven't seen them when the bell's rung, when the lights are on in 14 months. It's spring training is nice in the big leagues. It's nice in the minor leagues. Instructs are fine too. And the alt site is some weird mutant of, you know, live BPs and sim games. But their level of meaning in terms of evaluating prospects is questionable at best and variable as well. So it's nice to actually see something where we can add context to these players that we haven't seen in 14 months. Uh, that was a long way of saying, no, it's, it's a good one though. Damn it. I'm happy. It's back. Yeah. I just feel like all the, uh, just kind of all the passion that you have for it just kind of speaks to how long we've been without it, Josh. So thank you for that. Ben, how about you? Yeah. I think having that actionable information where we can, 
feel better making decisions and evaluations about these players by the, you know, by the first half of the season this year is just what I'm really happy to to have back. Like, like Josh said, it's been, I, I think we've gotten a lot of good information out of the alternate training sites and instructional league last year. And, and we have been able to update reports and move our rankings around based on feedback from there, but it's not the same as having these guys go out and take, you know, three, four, maybe 500 at bats in a year, throw hundred, 120 innings, whatever it's going to happen to be this season against, you know, other teams <laughs> and have official stats and, and, and also just for, you know, for, for fans, for readers, for, for listeners to be able to get easier access to that information themselves. I mean, we have the ability to pick up the phone and talk to coaches or scouts within an organization about their own players or players from other organizations and how they've been doing at these alternate training sites and instructional league. But it's hard to get into that as a fan when (laughs) you can't see any of this happening with very few video clip exceptions here and there of of a couple of stray highlights. So I'm looking forward to that as far as our ability to get better information and also just for everybody to have baseball back for for in-person looks and and just be able to keep up with it too on a daily basis just from following the the stats and seeing how these guys are doing i I have been religiously uh refreshing to see if we can get some probable pictures on milb.com because i'm sitting here like i need to make a schedule for the next week i need to know (laughs) if i'm going to have any updates on that front josh have they put anything Uh, out there yet probable pictures that i know of and they're not really applicable to where i am so sure uh, but the rosters are out, and this area is loaded with a capital L. Yeah, I guess we can just go go straight into that, Josh, since you brought it up. I was going to ask which which players or which teams you guys were most excited to see. Um, but Josh, since this area around North Carolina is so loaded, are there any specific teams you're really excited about that you think listeners should know about? And I guess for all of you, as as you guys are kind of thinking through, as Josh talks, who are some players? that you're really getting excited to see. Um, but yeah, I'll just throw it to you, Josh. What teams and players around here should people know about? Well, I was going to go on a very long rant about all the teams around the country that I could list. But well, you can do that too. Around here, Greensboro is going to be incredible. Um, you're going to have pretty much... And as we go, you might want to remind people levels if yes. you have if you know them, just because we are in a, a new format. Yeah, you might want to remind me what these levels are. Yeah, I, I, I'm having a hard time. I said that like, for selfish reasons, Ben. So I'm on the yeah. same page as you. <laughs> this is um well, just kind of frame of reference. There's one system in the minor leagues that had all four of its full season affiliates stay the same and not change levels, and that's the White Sox. It was low. It was low. Canapolis, High A Winston Salem, Double A Birmingham, Triple A Charlotte in 2019, and that's what it will be this year. All 29 other orgs differed some way. I'm talking about high high A Greensboro, which is not well, which is a yes, that is a change from 2019 when they were low A Greensboro. But anyway, uh, they're going to have pretty much every, nearly every low level pitching prospect in that system. Um, they're going to have 
Carmen Majinski, they're going to have Quinn Priester, they're going to have Tanaj Thomas, they're going to have Braxton Ashcraft. There's a couple more coming later. And if that's not enough, they have Nick Gonzalez, they have Leo Verpigaro. I mean, it's going to be a fun little roster for however, however long that lasts. I oh, feel like a pitching staff, like it, it's good to have the hitter, but if you have like a loaded pitching staff, especially with the way they're doing the series this year, oh yeah, that guarantees you're going to see something good pretty much when you're going to the park. Yeah, I, that's it's going to be incredible. And then, you know, right even closer, like Greensboro about an hour away from me. Durham, that's got, got this Wander Franco character who I've heard good Old things news. about. I've heard good things about, you know, but he hasn't played in a while, so we'll see. That's sarcasm, by the way. <laughs> Thank you for underlining it for the listeners, Josh. <laughs> uh, Kannapolis is going to have Andrew Dahlquist, Jared Kelly, Matthew Thompson in its rotation. So that's going to be a house of horrors for anybody who comes in. Uh, Brian Ramos, the kind of Cuban, intriguing, not kind of Cuban. I was about to say, I'm kind of Cuban. Is he also kind of Cuban? <laughs> He's more Cuban than you, but... Well, I can't finish that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Cuba third baseman Brian Ramos. He should be fun to watch. Um, and I got Benjamin Bailey, who was pretty good in 2019, too. So it will be interesting to see what he does. Yeah, Benny B. Well, the other Benny B. Uh, jumping from there to uh, to low A, because of you know the way my league is structured now. Uh, who else is around here? Uh, Zebulon, Carolina, the Mudcats are... Their roster isn't the most prospecty in the world, but they do have Abner Uribe, who is going to throw 100 miles an hour very many times and make it up to 102 or 103 for you. So that should be fun. Uh, they do have Freddy Zamora, who I'm kind of interested to see what he looks like post-surgery slash layoff. I think everyone is. I think the Brewers are. Nobody's seen him play in like <laughs> over yeah. two years. Well, I'm not going to speak for the Brewers. <laughs> Kyle, are there any players? Josh, you can think of some other guys that are maybe outside of your area or just other guys in general. But Kyle, who are you looking forward to seeing or, or most intrigued by? Yeah, so I think out West, you look at High Everett in the Mariners system. That's got a really, really, really talented roster led by Julio Rodriguez, who I think is one of the more fascinating guys to watch just because on the one hand, he's one of the most prodigious talents in minor league baseball, but he also hasn't played a lot. He's had a lot of injuries. He didn't play a whole lot last summer. The alternate side, I don't think he played at all, actually. Um, so on the one hand, he's the number three prospect in baseball. On the other hand, he's never played more than 85 games in a season. So I think just seeing what he can do and, and really getting a full minor league season under him and hopefully staying healthy is going to be really exciting. You have George Kirby and Emerson Hancock on that pitching staff in Everett. So that's going to be a team that I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on. You know, locally, the California League, when it was a high league, actually was really, really, really good, especially the last couple of years, the Dodgers and Angels, the players, they've been running through those farm systems. Because it's low A now, it means a lot of the college picks get skipped up to high A directly, so the talent's not as good, unfortunately. Hey, 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 we got the tools of guys coming out of high school, Kyle. Watch it. Come on. I would kill to see San Jose. <laughs> I, would, I would sell my soul to see San Jose on a nightly basis with the talent they have. Are you kidding me? I don't think you have to sell your soul. You just have to uh, strike it rich to be able to afford to buy a house in San Jose and be in driving distance to well, see them actually, every night. Table the thoughts you have for what you guys prefer in terms of levels, because I do think we have a good question that, that kind of hits right on that. But um, yeah. keep going, Kyle. Didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, no. So I think you know that's, that's a big thing. Um, I, some of the other prospects that 
you know, Ben talked about so much was done behind closed doors last year or in co contexts that are hard to kind of, you know, accurately place and figure out what it really means. And especially for some teams that didn't share data or video from their alternate sites, you don't even really have the second scout look on video to really try and balance some things out. You have to kind of trust entirely what the organization is saying. And some of that is just us being good reporters and developing sources and knowing who's going to BS us and who's going to give it to us straight. But even that doesn't totally replace having an external evaluator see a guy or seeing guys ourselves. And in that regard, I'm looking at Mackenzie Gore. The Potters were one of the teams that did not share video and data from the alternate site last year. There were a lot of different whispers and rumblings about what was going on there. I was able to talk to a lot of people in the organization and gather the picture of what was happening and wrote about it a lot. But seeing what it actually looks like in competitive game situations, and we saw him in spring training, but again, that's him facing a lot of big league guys. He's rusty. You don't want to go too crazy on that. Seeing what he can do especially in an environment like El Paso, the Padres are pushing him pretty aggressively there considering there's some command issues that were apparent when we got a little look at him at spring training. But again, you don't want to go too crazy on that. But when it vibes with everything we were hearing and writing about before from the alternate site and some of the things we've heard about from minor league spring training and the minor league and the alternate site this year, I think that's my biggest guy where I'm like, I need to see how this looks. I want to see how this looks because if he's the guy that showed up in the Cal League in 2019, yeah, then this is still a front of the rotation type starter. But if there are problems here that are not being fixed or at the very least are lingering, then we might need to reassess. So I think he's the guy that I'm just most curious to see to get a real feel for ourselves on where he's actually at. How about you, Ben? I'm looking forward to... Seeing seeing a lot of players who will be making their full season debuts this year, guys who, or if not debut, maybe they got a little taste of it in 2019. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking about players like Marco Luciano and Luis Matos with the Giants. You know, we, we've seen these guys in rookie ball or, or George Valera with the Indians who – you know, for, again, most of his time has come at, at rookie ball or, you know, I, I, I think the Giants and the Indians have a bunch of guys like that. I mean, mainly, it's, it, you know, mainly Luciano and Matos, um, but, you know, also Luis Toribio too with, with the Giants. They, they, they have a bunch of guys and the Indians do too with, you know, Brian Rocchio and, and some other, um, you know, especially in the Latin American side, you know, bats, but, but also, you know, Daniel Espino, those, those guys, I, I just want to see how do they respond to that jump to full season ball i think that's always a, a big jump for 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 young players and we didn't get to see what they what they would have done last year in that environment i mean it's i think it's cool that they were able to be challenged in in a lot of cases by the alternate site environment because you, you do have you did have guys who would have been in low a going up against guys who were you know would have been in double a or triple a or were kind of up in that up and down shuttle between the the alt site and the major league club but all right well let's let's see how these guys actually respond in that jump and then it's 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 a little bit further down the road but and that's why i was asking josh about it earlier is i 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited just for, for rookie ball, for, for the Gulf coast league, for the Arizona league, for the Dominican summer league. There, there are a lot of guys who are inter, were international signings from the 2019 class who have not played yet, which is pretty much all of them. Right. I mean, these, these guys like Jason Dominguez and Eric Pena and, you know, Hedbert Perez was at the alternate side for the Brewers, but uh, he's kind of the exception to to the rule with him and, and Robert Poussin. But all these guys, there's so many players who who need to just go out and play and lost so much valuable development time. I and mean, it's one thing to lose a year when you're 22 years old and, and you have a lot of experience either in, in college or, or pro ball. It's, it's another thing when you're, you know, a, you know, when you signed at 16 or 17 years old out of the Dominican Republic or Venezuela, and, and you just lost a year of uh, professional development for the most part. And, and these guys can change very quickly sometimes. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see these guys make that jump to low a, but I'm also excited once the summer gets started to actually see these guys who, you know, sign both, you know, I guess technically this year for the 2020 class and in January, the, you know, Christian Hernandez, Carlos Colmenares, those type of guys, but also that 2019 international class that just hasn't been able to, to make their debut yet. Well, you guys had a lot of good answers there, but unfortunately none of you guys had the right answers because no one mentioned Bobby Bobby Jr. Jr. or Austin Martin or Corbin (laughs) Carroll or Quinn Priester or Garrett Mitchell. So I'm really disappointed, but um, Josh mentioned, so pay attention. (laughs) Second of all, uh, ben, kind of notable, you mentioned Poiss, uh, Robert Poisson. Poisson yeah. yeah, he's actually starting in low A, which is kind of nuts. Yeah, that's an aggressive jump for for him. I, I, and, and, and with you know, with him, and maybe with him to to a lesser extent. I, I actually do expect him to struggle, but maybe for a different reason. But like, you know, Jason Dominguez. I think people, and I, I look, I love. Jason Dominguez, I think he's a very talented player, but I, I hope people also keep in mind that both he and, 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 and these other 2019 international signings who I just mentioned are all pretty much the same age as the high school seniors that we're talking about who are going to be drafted this year. And these guys lost a lot of development time last year, especially Dominguez. I mean, I, I don't understand what the Yankees – are doing having no instructional league last year. I mean, the and, and having a very limited Dominican instructional league, even the year before, I, I, I think Dominguez is, is just as far as his development. I think it, it I don't know. I, I, I hope he comes out and, and performs really well, but not having him play in a whole lot of games is, I don't know. I don't think this is like a controversial statement. I don't think that's a great thing for, for a baseball player. So um, I know expectations are, are sky high for him and I, I I'm still like him a lot, but I hope, I hope people can also kind of keep that context in mind with, with him and, and, some of these other 2019 international signs. Yeah, it it is good for people to have patience and hopefully you guys can have a little bit of patience as we go to a quick break, but we will be back to talk about more minor leagues and take some listener questions. 
And we're back. Thank you for uh, joining us again and sticking throughout the podcast. If you've listened this far, um, we're just going to jump right back into it. Uh, before the break, I know I had uh, told Josh you could talk about some more national players that he was excited to see. And I know there's no shortage of players that he has on his mind. So are there any other guys that we haven't touched on next, Josh, that, that you're looking forward to or that you think the listeners should uh, be excited to see what they're doing? Yeah, I'm going to have uh, a lengthy uh, notebook tomorrow. Uh, yeah, I've read it. It is very lengthy. It's awesome. Dude, I'm still still going. Uh, dudes who kind of either stood out or just kind of opened eyes or were intriguing or what have you at minor league spring training. It's not just, you know, Wander Franco is good. Um, I don't think that's really uh, helpful for anyone at this point. But there are some guys in there who are intriguing. Like um, I, I led with, you know, Anthony Volpe of the Yankees. And I led with him just because they got those reports first. Um, he looks, he's looked really interesting at Yankees camp. And they're starting him at low A this year. So I'd be really intrigued to see what that looks like. Because, you know, beyond the shutdown and everything, his 2019 season was kind of cut short because he got drafted and then got mono and was at Pulaski. So he just hasn't gotten a chance to do a whole lot of anything. And he wasn't at the alt site last year, obviously, because they structured it more toward guys who could help him in the big leagues. And then like Ben said, they didn't have instructs. So he's been, he'd been home for a while. He'd been chilling in New Jersey for a while. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what he looks like in the Florida state league and <clears throat> low South Southeast league. I'm sorry. Um, he's interesting uh, more on a national level. Like I, I'm really interested to see what, Austin Martin does jumping double a um, in his first appearance. I know I said, I wouldn't get the super top prospects, but that's a, a aggressive assignment for a guy just coming out. I know he's got the Vanderbilt pedigree just coming out of uh, pro ball for the, or coming into pro ball for the first time. And, you know, my favorite thing I think is like, I think like Ben talked about just going to the lowest levels you can and seeing what you can see. Like, my favorite thing, I think I said it on the last time I was on here is, seeing guys i've never heard of and having you know my eyes opened yeah i'm actually gonna jump in here josh and just throw the question out that we have from a reader since you're going into it but we did have rob dale on twitter ask what's your favorite minor league level to watch triple a because they're the best of the batch or lower levels where you can look for missed talent so i'll let you just pick up there but we did have that question and i wanted to get kind of everyone's insight on that well i'll dispute the thesis there that triple a is the best of the batch so they are the oldest of the batch for sure. Um, I will say that usually double A is probably where you find the, the most premium prospects um, less filled with, you know, your four A guys, your, your guys who are bouncing back and forth on the, whatever shuttle between let's, let's use Minnesota, the St. Paul to Minneapolis sh shuttle. Um, but I, I like to go, you know, as much as I can, and it's going to be weird this year uh, to, you know, GCL, hopefully some AZL, uh, I was hoping to go in 2020 to the Dominican Summer League and just see these guys that, you know, aren't on the radars yet. Because, you know, sometimes when you talk to scouts, and I don't know if you've experienced it, they'll talk to you about you know, the guys everybody knows, but they'll hold some guys back. And I understand that it's their job to acquire players. And if they make them famous by talking to us, they won't get them as easily. Um, but if we find them first and we blow them up, that's pretty. That's a pretty strong adrenaline rush, I think. When you're writing that story about a guy and you Google him, and or if you're JJ and you Bing him, 
and he's <laughs> not on any I radar written on our site or anything like that. It's like, oh, I'm on the ground floor of this. All you know, related to my mom saw Aerosmith play in a small club in the Northeast before they were anything. And I'm sure that it probably does the same feeling watching them. So basically you're saying you're a hipster. You like I to find wish. things before they're cool. I mean, I, if you want to drive in there, I mean, my parents, my, my, my parents, my dad and my brother are stockbrokers. And I don't think it's that long, uh, jagged of a line to draw it between stockbroking and finding stuff at the bottom and watching it rise to doing what we do. I think there's the same thing in there. I'm just not good at math. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. It's the same principle and it's the same adrenaline rush. It's just, you're sweating your, your butt off on a backfield on metal bleachers in a 90 degree heat with 200% humidity in front of 12 people. So you, you live for that, Josh. I'm going to throw it to you, Kyle, because I feel like you might have a different perspective. What, it, what is your favorite uh, level of the minor leagues to watch? From a pure visual pleasure standpoint it is triple a it's the cleanest level of baseball and you still do see a lot of guys who are popping up kind of late jay cronenworth is one example randy rosarena tore up the pcl after being kind of meh a little bit in double a and those guys went on to become stand-up big leaguers last year and i think that you can still find guys who were missed in the lower levels and are just blossoming a little bit later and i think it's really good baseball to watch but I think my personal wheelhouse probably is high A. And the reason I like high A a lot is because it's for my, so in my opinion, it's the first level of kind of watchable baseball. Everything else just kind of hurts my soul a little bit. <laughs> oh no. I know what you mean, but it's true. I mean, that's high as a first level where like guys are making the defensive plays they're supposed to, and they can actually locate fastballs for strikes and land a secondary pitch. Let me like tell you a little first... something about rural high school baseball guy. <laughs> so I think that, you know, high A is, is a good level there. And it's also the level where I think guys start to separate. Because again, low A, a lot of the college guys skip over it or they dominate it because they're college guys facing 18-year-olds in a lot of the cases or the lower end prospects. High is where you start getting, you know, a lot of the really good college players, the better – younger guys who've been able to move up to that level and have some success. It's kind of the chaff's been cut a little bit. The level of play is pretty good. And there's a lot of guys who are, you know, still at the very beginning of their careers and you can see them starting to blossom. And a lot of cases, that's also where you kind of start to find some guys like, Hey, there's this one guy who's a name, but he's not actually that good. But the other guy who's, you know, playing beside him is actually really good. And people aren't talking about him yet. And I think this is, the first level where it starts to really mean something because they're actually seeing, you know, pitchers with fastballs they can command and secondaries they can land and they're not getting as many cheap hits as they did before. You, you can't fake your way to being good. I mean, really any level of professional baseball, it's all relative here, of course, but I think high A for me is where things start to separate. And that's kind of what I like a little bit in terms of the lowest levels, but I will say just from a clean baseball and you still do find guys popping up that does still happen in triple a. And I do find it enjoyable. All right, Ben, I'll throw it to you then. The the two that I really enjoy one would be double a, like Josh said, that's, I mean, you, you do have good prospects in triple a too, but a lot of times they're not there for very long. Double a to me is that level. That's more of a, a separator 
I don't really see much of a difference between low A versus high A, but when you go from high A to double A, I think the caliber of competition that you're seeing is is different. Even in the into the bullpens, you start to get some more legitimate prospects there, um, or or guys who you know guys who throw harder, guys who have more more weapons in there. Um, but you you get a good amount of prospects. These guys are are close to making an impact at the major league level. You can see guys go, you know, start the year, you know, we, we will see some guys who start the year and, you know, maybe high a ball and then they'll get to the major leagues by the end of the year. But it's, it's a lot more common to see somebody who's in double a, not necessarily skip right to the big leagues, but if somebody who's in double a at the beginning of the year could have an impact to the major league level uh, by the end of the season. So you're, you know, not every team, but you're you're usually going to get pretty good prospects who you know are going to be big leaguers and and potential stars. There, it's a good caliber of of competition to um, to be able to evaluate players at. And then the the opposite end of that that I, I really like, like Josh said, is going down to the complex leagues and seeing rookie ball guys for both both on the international players and for the draft picks too, guys who are just drafted and and this year it's going to be even more interesting because it's it's not going to be the talent is not going to be as dispersed as it normally would where you would have uh, you know the Mets would send Francisco Alvarez to the Appy League or the Royals would send some of their guys to the Pioneer League or, or 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 even just the the New York Penn League and the Northwest League are gone now. So what do you do with all of those players who otherwise would have been in those leagues? Maybe some of the college guys you'll push them a little bit more aggressively to low A to start their career. But the one I think the number of teams and two the just the caliber of player who's going to be in the Gulf Coast League and the Arizona league this year is just going to be higher than what we have been accustomed to. And we'll just, you know, I don't know what we're going to do with our, our league top 20 prospects list <laughs> this year, but it's, it's going to be, it's going to be fun just to see how just to try to shake out all the players there. Cause it's, mm. you have, you have first year international players there. So you're getting your, not your first looks at it, but you know, your first official pro looks at those guys players who are coming over from the Dominican summer league uh, who have heard about. And and then like Josh said, there's always guys who pop up there too. I'm like, who, who is this guy throwing 98 that the scout is telling me about who I've never heard of before. Oh, well he signs, you know, two years ago throwing, you know, 87, 91, but he had a big view spike over, over the past year. And, and now he looks like a, a legitimate top 30 type guy in that organization and also for draft picks too, where yeah, we're we're hearing about all these guys for the draft, especially on on the high school side, and they're they're swinging metal bats against other high school kids, many of whom are not even going to go on to play college baseball. And we're trying to evaluate them over the spring, but then they get to pro ball, and all right, now they're facing all pro guys, wood bats. We're getting you know, hopefully 100, 150 or so at bats out of out of these guys and get a, a much better 
get get a better sense. Not that you throw out like we've talked about, you know, throw out your your previous amateur reports, but I, I think there's a lot of value to seeing draft picks and and being able to update for for new information that you're getting on these guys coming out of the GCL or or the Arizona League too. Yeah, you you touched on one of the other questions that I had for you guys and just kind of with the restructuring of the minor leagues, how do you think that's going to affect both the talent level at, at all these levels, which maybe you guys have already addressed and kind of answered with, with kind of your conversations before, but how do you think teams are going to handle developing players now that you have eliminated some of the lower levels of the minor leagues? Do you think it's going to change the composition of those leagues enough that low A will basically now be how we thought of those lower level leagues before how are teams going to progress or move their players now? And do you guys think there's going to be a big shift in the, the sorts of amateur players that teams target because of this new system? So that's a lot of questions there. And I know you guys have, we've talked about this internally. You guys have definitely talked with scouts and teams about a lot of these things, but I just wanted to throw all of that at you and basically see what you thought. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is it's all, guesswork at this point everyone i've talked to player development officials about it front office officials about it minor league coaches about it and i have my own thoughts about it and we're in just such uncharted territory with so much changing that any predictions made you kind of have to take with a grain of salt i don't think anyone can confidently state anything i know for me my thought is that yes low a the level of play we're seeing will be closer to what we used to see in say the Appalachian league or the pioneer league, those advanced rookie leagues. And I just talked about how high a was sort of the first level where I thought things kind of got, you know, to to where something was maybe real or not. I think that might change too. And high a might now start to look a little more like low a did. And, you know, double a Ben made this comment and I agree that the largest jump in the minor leagues was already high A to double A. That's that's the biggest separator in the minors right there. And now if the caliber of high A is lower, what happens? Do more guys get cut? Does the caliber of double A and triple A drop? But if that happens, then the players are less prepared for the major leagues because those are levels players can jump to the major straight from. So I don't know. At the very least, I do expect the caliber of low A to be lower than it was and I think we'll probably see the caliber of high A be lower than it was. Those are two things I, I, as confident as you can be, which isn't that confident in the grand scheme of things, I think those are the two things I'm expecting the most and feel relatively confident about. But even that's, you know, a 20% confidence level. It's not any supreme confidence there. What is it? What, what, why, why do you think that the level of play in low A would go down? Because it's going to be guys who I think we're going to see it to be similar to the level of play we saw in the advanced rookie leagues in terms of just the caliber of the players, because it's going to be that level. A lot of those guys who were seeing low A were guys who had spent a year in the complex leagues, had a full year of short season ball. They were just a little older, a little more mature, had more game reps, had a little more experience, just more reps, better players, higher level of ability. Now I think losing that short season and not all, you know, some players were jumping straight to low A after a brief stint in rookie ball, but there are also a large amount of guys who are coming up after playing, you know, a full short season. And a lot of those guys were also away from home for the first time in short season ball. They were able to handle some things off the field better and that allowed them to focus on the field better. There's all sorts of things here where I think we will see the caliber of low A resemble again, that, that 
short season ball, that advanced rookie level, or maybe uh, what we saw, you know, in the short season Northwest League, something like that. You guys, yeah. oh, go ahead, Ben. I, I think it would be, uh, I, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll see what ultimately happens when all of those players are, are assigned, but it, I, I think it would be more likely that those, like a player who's repeating rookie ball, you know, even if it would have been technically a promotion to the, you know, the Appy League, uh, I would think a lot of them, one might either just get cut with the new, with the new, you know, restrictions on the minor leagues, or or might just repeat the Arizona League or the Gulf Coast League. Like if if I was a club I, I would want to have multiple I would want to have multiple clubs or multiple rosters in the Arizona League or or the GCL and I would probably just have those guys repeat the level and then I think also the like I I think the GCL and Arizona League would just get more would get more college heavy than usual like after the like after the draft I don't I th- I think you would still see you know, the Adley Rushmans and, and those type of guys who are first round college bats would go straight to either low A or maybe high A in some, some cases. Um, but otherwise, I think a lot of those guys would, instead of maybe going to the New York Penn League or going to the Appy League, would probably just go to the GCL and we would see more, more of like a college heavy feel in the GCL relative to what it's been before. You, you guys good. can correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm off base coming at it like this, but I was kind of thinking that with the way the minor leagues were restructured, a lot of the organizational types and NP type players who you previously had, I just assumed that a lot of those players would be the guys who were kind of pushed out of the minor league system and you would almost have a more concentrated level of talent at every level is that off base josh i can see you nodding your head so i guess you agree with me but what are your thoughts on that that is exactly how i would do it you are going to get especially with the 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 shorter draft too um where you're not taking the organizational player at the back um or in the middle or wherever you take them um or in the eighth round and you're saving a bunch of money (laughs) yeah that's what i'm saying we're in the fourth round and you're saving a bunch of money (laughs) in any case you know I think there's, you're both right. Like the quality of play at low A might go down because you are not ready. You are going to get guys who might, especially this, this next year and next year after that, you're going to get guys who have to move because there's just such a backlog and they might not be ready for low A after a layoff of however long, yada, yada, yada. However, and, and I, I was just going to point in too like a lot of those guys are probably the players who were not guys who would have gone to the alternate site and gotten those development reps and might've just lost more development time too. Right. Like guys who are in the, like the Luciano age range, but aren't in the Noel V Marte age range, but aren't the caliber of prospect. Those two dudes did go to the alt site, but there are other guys like I'll use uh, Kevin Alcantara as an example with the Yankees. Um, who was in that general ballpark age-wise and didn't go there and was didn't have much of much of anything to do this last year outside of maybe a little bit of Dominican instructs. He's going to extend it, but if he had to go to low A, I would not expect a big time performance out of him because it's just not the the level he was uh, ready for just yet. Um, 
That said, the caliber of play might go down, but I think the quality of prospect will go up. You're going to see a lot more tools and a lot less skills at this point. You know, I've talked to a, a lot of scouts over the last couple of days. You know, X, Y, and Z guy will probably struggle numbers-wise to begin the year, but this is where you have to look at the tools more than the output. You have to believe the tools for longer. I think there's going to be a lot of patience required for some of these bigger names who are younger, but, you know, went through this heck over the last uh, 14 months and aren't necessarily ready for the level they're going to be at. That kind of stinks for them, but, you know, they, they are still talented players. It just might take a little longer. But Alcantara, like, and Alcantara is a good example, though. I mean, he's a Yankees outfielder. I don't know exactly off the top of my head how old he is. I've been watching him since he was like 14, but I think he's, what, 18 or so? Yeah. Now he played in the GC, or maybe 19, 6'6 outfielder who does not move like a 6'6 guy. He just glides out in center field, really tooled up, really athletic, uh, really crude approach at the plate, at least as of 2000. 19 in the GCL when he was, I think he was still 16 at that time when he made his debut. But I like, I, I see a guy like, I, I, I feel like he's, he's not going to go to low A though. Right. Like he would be, a, oh, he'd no, be an no. example. I, I, of It was a bad example there. I picked an 18 year old. And I forgot he's not going to low A. Right. But no, that's, that's kind of my point is those guys who I think are not ready for it would probably be more likely to in like in his case, you know, just repeat, rookie ball again and go back to the Gulf Coast League and we'll have this like mega GCL mega Arizona League too rather than it watering down low A that much. Let's use an example of a guy who is going. Okay. That's Matos. Um, with Luis, Luis Matos. Matos with the Giants. Yeah. Yeah. He's 18 years old and he is one of my favorite prospects on the planet and I fully expect him to struggle at San Jose. Now he might get a little bit of boost because he's playing in the Cal league and, you know, things happen in the Cal league, but he's going to be facing a lot of pitchers who are above his experience level. This is his first time outside of the complex ball. I mean, shoot instructs last year was like, you know, came after like five months of sitting in the courtyard in Scottsdale. So he hasn't had a whole lot of baseball experience period, but he's dripping with tools and, is now going to be in a level where he's going to get challenged a lot. So it's going to require patience from fans and people like us who, you know, are waiting for the big time numbers performance. It just might not get it. It's going to be develop the, 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 the way development works is going to change, I think because of this. So that's, I think kind of my rant on, or not even a rant, uh, my thoughts on what the realignment is going to do for the minor leagues. And it's obviously exacerbated by COVID uh, for a lot of reasons. I actually think Luis Machos is going to rake right away. Well, I put <laughs> on the bet board. So two, two things, two things I need to say. One is now that Lancaster and high desert are gone, the Cal is actually not the hitter par- hitters paradise. People think of it as it's going to be mm. interesting to see how long it takes people to realize that now Matos is actually playing in San Jose, which is, not friendly to hitters at all. So that'll actually be interesting to see how he fares there. Josh and Ben, you can talk about this a little bit. And some of this is personal philosophy. 
even in a normal year, I always say April, which is typically the first year of the minor league season, is generally a really poor time to evaluate, especially the lower levels, the low A, high A guys. A lot of the hitters, especially, it's, you know, all their timing back. It's the beginning of the year. They're shaking off the rust a little bit. Minor league spring training does not do it entirely. I mean, even in the major leagues, we see the first two, three weeks of a major league season, there's plays not being made defensively. Hitter swings are not quite on time. They're a little bit late. Some pitchers are dealing with some command issues. It takes them a couple of weeks to kind of get up to game speed, regular season game speed. And I think that's especially true in the minors. So I always, in a normal year, tried really hard not to overreact to anything in April, but especially anything bad in April and generally kind of give guys a little bit of a pass. And now with these circumstances, you know, I know for me going in these first couple of weeks, I'm, you know, again, kind of just give guys a pass, especially if opening weekend and you get a three or four game look and it's not great. Don't go crazy on it how long is kind of the grace period for you guys? I almost feel like I want to give these guys a month before we start really making any harsh assessments. It's more for the guys who are struggling than the guys who are succeeding, but just in general, because I mean, a lot of these guys have not played in 18, really 19 months now. Ben, you want to take it? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's generally a good point about April. And then you throw in like, guys from warm weather climates going to the Midwest league or <laughs> where it's, you know, they're playing in 40 degree temperatures for, for the first time in their life. And that's, that's always a, a factor, but yeah, I mean, all the, all, all the points you said, I, I pretty much am in agreement on that. It's it, it, it you know, I, I, I think I also just sample size too, where we, you know, we see a guy's numbers too after the first week of the season or the first two weeks of the season, and it jumps out more if he's struggling then than if he just has a couple of bad months in the middle of July. In the or excuse me, a couple of <laughs> a couple of That'd bad be weeks. Really impressive if you had a couple <laughs> yeah. of bad months. If you squeeze two <laughs> bad months <laughs> into one, um, but yeah, you know, it, it like if if you just have a couple, yeah, you know, first impressions mean a lot. Basically. Yeah, and it, it just it doesn't drag down your stat. Or, or they they don't either. necessarily mean a lot. They jump out at you. Yeah, and it, and those two bad weeks in July don't drag your stat line down the way it yeah. does if you perform like crap for the first two weeks of of the season. But yeah, I, I think really that's it's always important to keep context in mind. But especially over over the last year, there, there's so many different factors. Like I don't, I don't know what's the scouting adage of scouting or evaluating players during a pandemic. Like uh, that's, I, was, I wasn't around yeah. for the Spanish flu to, to pick anybody. Can you, right what was it in the Spanish flu times? Can you, can you tell us? I was going to say, let's ask Art Stewart because he's, he, that's a, a little bit of an exaggeration. Art Stewart is a, is a long time Royal scout who literally was scouting Don Larson's perfect game. <laughs> so there's that. But um, to the, to answer the question, I mean, I, it's going to be tough, man. I might, I might be inclined if it depending on who it is, I might give them the entire year. I might give them a pass for the entire year. I mean, we gave Luis Robert, Luis Robert in his first year out of, you know, limbo in Cuba sucked in his first year as a pro and then became Luis Robert in his second year. Now, unfortunately today we found out he is going to be out of action for three to four months. 
with a hip flexor strain. Sorry, there was a small child walking by my door and I thought he was about to do something <laughs> untoward. <laughs> anyway, it's gonna be kind of crazy. I mean, age is gonna matter, context is gonna matter. You know, how, what they did during the pandemic is gonna matter. There's 18,000 different variables and I'm not ready to just kill a guy if he has a bad year. We have to do it on the college side too for for the draft this year. Yeah, I mean, we talked about yeah. Adrian guys Del- are getting killed. <laughs> Don't worry, guys are getting killed. <laughs> I think for me, less it's less the the stat line. I'm thinking about the guy going and see here these you know first couple games on opening day, and you know there's no strike zone discipline or pitch recognition. You know, swing is just a mess, late on everything. Normally, it'd be like okay, red flag, like even early, again, you always want to give a guy a little bit of a break, especially in the first month, but it's like, all right, I need to keep this in the back of my mind and, you know, circle back and see in June or July if this has gotten any better because this is bad right now. Whereas now I might just be like, yeah, I'm just going to give him a pass because it's completely understandable that he would not be up to game speed right now. So it's going to be interesting. And I, I again, I don't have the answer. I think we're going to have to kind of, deal with it as we go and and see how guys adjust and improve. I think that's going to be my biggest thing this year, maybe less what the final production looks like numbers wise, but just seeing how they improve. Because if a guy looks as bad as he does in May, but we see those little improvements throughout the year, I think you take that as a win. In some ways it's kind of like Midwest league in April, Ben, that was actually a good point. I always said, throw out April numbers in the Midwest league, just ignore them completely. Just pay them no attention, especially for, you know, the guys in their first full seasons coming from California, Florida, Texas, Georgia, Latin America. Unless it's but Bo Bichette and he just rakes right away. Right. There are the <laughs> rare freaks who can do that. But for the most part, but then you say, okay, you know what? His slash line in June was better than it was in May. And in July it was better than it was in June. And just looking for the progress, even if the overall numbers aren't good, if you just see improvement throughout the year, I think you take that as a win. You take that as a win generally. But I think this year, especially, um, you just take that as the win, even if the final numbers are very bleh. All right. I think with that, we can get into some listener questions. We have uh, several of them that are pretty good. We've already um, got into one of them. Jack Breen on Twitter asks, hey, Carlos, or he says, hey, Carlos, hope all is well. And I'm going to assume he's saying hey to all of you as well. Just had a couple of questions for this week's podcast. If you guys feel like answering either of these, one, as the minor league season begins, which prospects that are in the bigs right now do you think could be sent down? Just not typically the direction that we get these questions in. He said, Campusano is a name that comes to mind. Not sure if there are any others. So I'll just throw that one out to you guys. Um, I guess we're being very pessimistic or just want to know who's going to be sent down. Are there any prospects that come to mind for you guys? Well, Campusano was already deep. sent down. So there you um, go. That's sort of, yeah. Uh, well, I- we actually need to check when Jack sent this one. So he he probably sent it a few days ago. So I don't think I don't think Jack was misinformed here. It's probably my prescient. Fault. Yeah, no, I think it's more something that yeah, no, I mean he saw what it was that as soon as Austin Nola came back off the IL, that meant Camposano was going to go down, and that's how the timing lined up. Yeah, I mean I think any guys who are actually still in the big leagues that you think might be sent down. Well, a lot of the rosters have come out already, so I mean we kind of know who some of those guys were. Um, I don't know. I, I will say one, I got this in a chat question last week and someone asked, you know, if Andrew Vaughn or Trick Scooball would be the first guy sent down. And 
you know, I said, I thought it might be Vaughn. I thought it would be Vaughn just because the White Sox were trying to win. He's not really in the right position. The playing time's been uneven. You really want this guy to just go get every day at bats. And in fairness, he's actually hit 275 with a 373 on base percentage in the majors, despite jumping from high A, playing out of position and dealing with inconsistent playing time. So I think you actually give him a tremendous amount of credit. And now I might look the other way. You look at Tariq Skubal and Casey Mize out in Detroit, who, I mean, they're just, they're scuffling. I mean, Skubal is not throwing strikes. His strikeouts are down. It has not been good. He's, he's getting hit. He's walking guys, surface level numbers, underlying numbers, None of it's been particularly good. And I know the Tigers are not good, but at a certain point, sending a guy out to just get killed in the majors every outing doesn't do anyone any good, long-term or short-term. So, um, you know, as much as Mize has not been a world beater world beater either, you know, Scooble's really, really struggling. And, and that might be one case of a guy who, who goes down just to sort some things out. We see a lot, pitchers, they take time. I would like to introduce you to Lucas Giolito and Tyler Glass now. It took multiple call-ups and send-downs before they figured it out. Um, I think this could be a case of a guy who, who kind of needs something like that in Scooble. Yeah, that, w- that wouldn't be out of line. I mean, it's hard to say who's going to. Uh, just knowing, I'm looking at the Mud Hens roster right now, and it's Matt Manning and a bunch of 4A guys. I mean, uh, Wiley Peralta, Rosmo Ramirez, Ronnie Willie Dar- Peralta, Wiley. <laughs> I like that. Well, that's how you spell Wiley? Like Wiley Coyote. <laughs> Willie that, Peralta sir, is Wile, and then the, <laughs> e, the middle initial it's Wile E Coyote. But anyway, Josh, now you now you can come back on the podcast now that you're mispronouncing names. That's the official. Uh, yeah, we like that official policy of the Future Projection <laughs> Podcast. Uh, uh, Mr. Badler, I. I, I <laughs> <laughs> we had uh, another question from Doug Otto uh, from Instagram. He asked, what current MLB stars did you have the most questions slash doubts about as prospects? I'll again, throw this one to you guys. Cause I think a lot of the guys that I would have seen as amateurs are kind of just getting to that level now. So you guys might have some better answers than I, I thought you were going to say, I'm going to throw it to you guys. Cause I've never been wrong about anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I do not have that level of confidence. Don't ben, worry. you're the longest tenured BA guy. What about? I feel like you're the best. I have, one I have, this. I have a, I have a pitcher and a hitter. You said the question was about stars, right? Yeah, MLB so, stars. But if you want to blur the line, then that's fine. No, no, no. I'll give you stars. I was wrong about <laughs> Madison Bumgarner. When he was in, he got to Double A when he was 19 years old. He was a first round pick out of high school in 2007. Two years later, he, he was really good in low A the year before, and he was young for, for his class, so he was in double A two years later at 19 years old. And he overall, like he he, he like his ERA was low that year, and he threw strikes, but his strikeout rate dropped to like under six per nine. And that's because he had this velocity dip. At the time where he was, he was 90, 94. Later on, he was more, as the season went on, he lost velocity. He was like 88, 92. And and there were times where he was sitting mid to upper 80s. And if if you go back and read our old reports, like, all right, so we have a, you know, this was 
a little over 10 years ago. So, so the velocity in the game was not overall was not what it was or not what it is right now, but still a left-handed pitcher who, yeah, threw strikes, but velocity was already declining into, you know, mid to upper eighties. And, and our old reports on him were, there always kind of questioned the, the secondary stuff too. So we have a, you know, an upper eighties lefty who's, you know, we're already seeing his velocity decline uh, questions about whether he has an out pitch among his secondary stuff and the strikeout rate is dropping with it. And I just thought, I don't, I don't think the arrows are kind of pointing the right way on, on this one. But John Manuel absolutely loved Madison Bumgarner, and we we always still ranked him really high. And I was like, I just don't get it. I don't see that one. Uh, I don't see this front end starter projection from this kind of stuff and and this kind of trend. And as I mentioned earlier, he is I think is a legitimate. Uh, or, or at least will be in a legitimate Hall of Fame conversation when his career is over. So, so that would That's be a good one. one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or well, depending on your perspective, <laughs> not not for me. But um, the the other guy would be Tim Anderson, who when he was coming up through the minor leagues. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I saw athleticism and and good tools, but. I, I typically bet more on on players who have better pitch recognition skills and, and better strike zone judgment. And I I kind of questioned what his he, he performed well in the lower levels of the minor leagues, but it was, you know, high, high batting average, but I, I thought it was gonna be more of an empty batting average type guy because he wasn't wasn't hitting for a lot of power. Uh, you know, the strikeout rates were not terrible, but it was, it was still kind of on the higher end uh, earlier on in his minor league career. So I, I thought he was just, I thought it was more of an empty batting average without a lot of power, without drawing many walks, without great feel for the strike zone. And I thought better pitchers would pick, pick him apart once, once he started facing more, advanced arms and he's obviously proven that wrong <laughs> he's he's one of the he's, he's you know it, it's still not great plate discipline but he's i mean he's he's just such a good athlete and he he finds a way to to make it work so i think that would be my 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 pitcher and my position player picks for uh for superstars or or, or star players who i was i was too light on coming up in the minor leagues Josh, I'll throw it to you. Well, it's I'm going to kind of put an asterisk by it since I never saw this guy. I've never seen this guy, period. Uh, but I didn't believe in Shohei Otani at all. Not even a little bit. Um, I, thought, I thought he was going to flame harder than, you know, a barbecue during the summertime. Um, and frankly, even coming into this year, I still didn't buy it. Um after the first couple outings, I know he had command issues. He's walking a ton of guys, but he clearly can do it. <laughs> is he 
gonna you know the Japanese Babe Ruth was the you know the term thrown around. It's I don't know if it's that good just yet, but it's pretty damn good. He's much faster than Babe Ruth for sure. From our Babe Ruth expert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> up After seeing him live as a child, Josh knows better than oh, most. I I clarified this. I am his father. I am Mr. Ruth. Um, but in any case, yeah, I was wrong. I I didn't see him in that spring training where he was clearly playing some sort of possum with everyone, where he was just getting his either doors blown off or, you know, brains beat in on the mound uh, and then, you know, turn it on when the lights turned on. Another reason to not pay much attention to spring training results ever for any reason, unless it's a dude going on the IL. I will raise that flag till the end of time. Um, but yeah, very clearly some measure of star uh, and... <laughs> That just was wrong. <laughs> Kyle, do you have any that come to mind? Yeah, well, so I still remember. So I was on the other side of this. I'm like, this guy's going to be really good. I didn't know if he'd be able to hit the way he has, but I thought this was going to be a, a star-level talent in some form or fashion. I remember Josh sending me a Slack message. At some point during those rookie years, like, you were right. He's a wizard. It was, it was, I just, Kyle, Kyle, Kyle this is that. not, are you right? Which ones were you right no, about? No, 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 no. As, as the, the Otani <laughs> thing brought back memory. Yeah. So I think, doing that. I think so <laughs> the guy that I was the most wrong on. So keep in mind, I've been doing this less time than you guys have. So I have a smaller pool to work with. And when I think about most of like the stars that I saw who came through like the Cal league, when I was doing that 20, you know, 2011 to 16, then joining BA and doing things more national level. Like it's not because I'm brilliant. It's because these guys are just so freaking good you couldn't possibly miss it i mean george springer carlos correa Corey seager cody bellinger like you couldn't miss the fact these guys were great jose altuve was the best player in the cali in 2011 i've gotten had a front row seat to it um so when i think about the stars at that level they just jump out and grab you by the throat you 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 can't miss it the guy who I would say is my biggest miss. He's not a star, but he's very, very clearly a, a very good major leaguer. And I did not see it coming at all is Trent Grisham. So I saw him in 2017 when he was Trent Clark at high class, a Carolina. He was a first round pick. Josh saw him plenty too. It was a kind of a, a bad body. It was a, a dumpy, thick lower half at times early in the year. He struggled, you know, it, it was not a great lower half. It was in, Awful, awful, awful swing. I mean, missing hittable pitches left and right. He had good strike zone discipline, but if you, I mean, I saw him swing and miss with just awful swings over 93 mile an hour fastballs down the middle. Um, in center field, he, he frankly did not play a very good center field. He plays a very casual center field in the majors, but he makes the plays and he makes it work. At that time, there were a lot of balls that were hit over his head and rather than running back to a spot and, you know, getting in position to make the catch, he would just kind of drift back, drift back, drift back. And the ball would fall two feet over his head instead of, you know, an ending ending fly out, it would be a double or in some cases would clank off the edge of his glove and be an error. It's like, okay, so we have a guy who, and I never saw these great run times. I kept getting fifties, 55s. He was never the speedster who's running 90, you know, whatever sprint speed percentile he's in now was, whatever you know 90 plus percent it's like okay so we have a guy who has an awful swing i don't like the way the body is going he doesn't play hard on defense or make the plays 
And even though he was, he was a good base stealer, he had good instincts, which helped him and he controlled the strike zone. And those are two good things, but you look at those numbers. I mean, he was, it was 220 in high a is what he was hitting uh, with, you know, slug under 400 as a left-handed hitter in a park with a very, very short right field wall. I, I just, I didn't see the ability to hit for average. I didn't see the ability to hit for power. I did not see the ability to play particularly the good defense and, you know, the, the pure run times were not great, even though the stolen bases were. And then he went to double A and he struggled again the next year. I, I mean, at no point did I say, see Trent Grisham and say, oh, this guy, yeah, he's absolutely going to be a leadoff hitting gold glove winning center fielder on a team with legitimate World Series aspirations. And to his credit, he completely changed everything about him after that really, really, really rough 2018 in double A. He talked about a lot. He reoriented his swing. He, he, I mean, just completely changed as a player, everything about him. And 2019 comes around and he explodes. And and even I was still a little skeptical. I'm like, how much of this is a one-year blip versus something sustainable? And he's come out and proven. I mean, this is a a great, great player who, again, is playing gold glove defense in center field and stealing bases left and right and making contact and getting on base and, you know, I think what I kind of learned from it is, you know, if you have really good, and I, I, you know, this already, but you know, the stolen base efficiency was kind of an indicator of the athleticism that's still in there. And the fact that he was able to separate balls from strikes and, and still drew a lot of walks. I mean, that was promising. So, but again, a guy who hits 223 with a 348 slug in high a, and isn't really doing a whole lot defensively either. It, I, I did not believe that was going to be a player who could achieve the heights that he has achieved. So that's, that's my biggest miss, you know, is he a start this exact moment in time? I don't think you put him in that caliber or that tier, but the way he's trending, I mean, you feel like he's probably going to be an all-star at some point in the next few years. All right. Those are good ones. Um, we had another question from, triple D glove side on Instagram asks, how will you evaluate players in the futures game with it being at Coors field this year? I'll just throw it out at you guys. I don't know why that would change it too much, but maybe I'm just missing something entirely. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing you do. I mean, generally is look for hard contact and, you know, see the pitchers, how their stuff is playing the strike zone and watch how the ball comes off the bat. I mean, there are going to be some balls that maybe aren't squared up that travel, but just focus on, how the ball comes off the bat. That'll give you some good indications. Uh, you know, got a lot of practice with that uh, covering high desert for a couple of years where, you know, you just look at how the ball comes off the bat. If, you know, if it flies out, that doesn't necessarily mean you really got all of it. You really have to hone in on that. So same thing with course field. Um, I guess my answer is I don't really ever evaluate at the futures game, regardless. It's an exhibition where pitchers are, blowing gas for one inning and trying to blow it out and they really aren't the best representations of themselves hitters are going up there trying to you know hit bombs and just have a good show for the crowd and blah 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 and here's where you insert isn't that what baseball is today anyway and you move <laughs> on <laughs> and, uh no it's just just a one game kind of fun exhibition i don't think you take too much from it good or bad it's it is what it is cores will make batting practice more fun and probably the high school home run derby, if that's still a thing, especially with metal bats. Uh, I don't think they're going to do that, are they? I don't know. It's four months from, or 
what month? Are we I mean, in? The what draft month? is literally that night. That's true. Hold on. <laughs> They should bring Elijah Green out just for <laughs> that would be fun. Just for Dude, some two, him and him and Drew Jones, get them out there and start hitting some <laughs> some bombs for just for me and Carlos. Yeah, well, just you two in. <laughs> I do want to put it aside there too because I'm again the sub host. I remember in I think it was DC for the Futures game, John Manuel and JJ and I all got the Futures game for that home run derby, which is held at ungodly hours of the morning. People who work regular nine to five jobs. The high school home run derby. Yeah, the high school home run derby are just, it's a weird hour. And we get there before anybody else except one guy, AJ Preller. That guy was just chilling outside. Like, He's a grinder. What? Like, it was his one man Shashevskyville at the Futures game, just chilling on the outside, waiting for them to let him in. If, if there's a, a stickball game in the park, that guy wants in. You know, you know, AJ Preller doesn't sleep. No, no, I, I've had that comment before. I had a remember I was texting a scout and I said, Oh, I have a 5 15 a.m. flight out of here. And he's like, That's AJ Preller hours, you fool. <laughs> I think like 10 years ago, the future, you, you probably would put more weight onto the futures game just because you had more limited looks at all of these guys, whether, whether you were a, a scout or, or, working at BA doing our jobs because it was you, you have so many guys in one place and, and you just don't have the the video tools that you had pre that at back then that we have now so there was a little bit more sense of urgency or, or weight that you would put onto the features game whereas now there's just a lot more readily available information and video on all of these guys but I still like when I go to the futures game, I'm, I'm, I'm still looking more at like mechanical stuff, like batting practice, see the way a, a player swing works, obviously in, you know, in, in different ballparks, the ball carries more and depending on the baseball they use it, it carries more. I mean, that jumped out to me a few years ago <laughs> at the futures game. One time I was like, I didn't think this guy had that much power and then we kind of realized oh we keep saying that about a bunch of guys and it's probably because they're starting to use this uh juicier baseball here in um in in the game and in the futures game than what they were using previously in the minors but if you know like if you're just evaluating or or watching the way a player's swing works you, you can get a pretty good feel for that in bp that's not really gonna change from a normal bp some guys might sell out a little bit more try to hit the ball out in a, a big league park, but you don't see a uh, a ton of that in and out, like infield, outfield. It's it's helpful a little bit, but they're not taking like a serious uh, in and out at that time. So um, so I don't find that quite as 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 useful. Right, think about the um, balls. Oh, well, I was gonna say you mentioned the balls flying. I think about the DC futures game and an all-star game that was ridiculous the balls are flying out that was the year where the futures game home run record was broken the all-star game home run record was broken you know taylor trammell was hitting bombs and it's just now we know that they were definitely using some juicier baseballs for for that weekend because that that to me was the ultimate just this is insane this this has gone beyond the bounds of fun baseball this is kind of ridiculous i, I will tell another story of that one too one of my friends from trenton who worked in the front office in Trenton 
was one of the BP throwers at that game because he had gotten like, some sort of coaching job at American University. And he tells me after the game, like, these were cue balls. Like, they barely had stitches. They were so juiced up. And then I remember walking down the stairs at some point because I got locked out of the elevator or some other dumb thing that I do all the time. And I was in there with a pitcher. I forget who it was. And he was going on like, man, these balls were super juicy. Oh, my, I've never seen anything like it. I'm like, oh, you don't know. You're next to Super Reporter Bear who knows who's going to put this out there. But yeah, everyone was saying stuff about all this, all, all how, how juicy the baseballs were and how nuts it were. I remember like the futures, the, the, the home run derby, the high school home run derby, the winner, I think it was Bobby Witt, hit more home runs than the previous two winners combined at that event. And he was putting balls out of the stadium, like hitting the bagel place beyond left field. <laughs> it's just like... It was like getting a tennis ball. You should have known then and there, Josh. You should have known then and there. I don't even know if I actually went to that event. I just knew what happened. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. Did you say you got locked out of an elevator? Uh, that may have may have happened. Um, oh, I think. I, like, what does that even mean? <laughs> there, were too, there were too many people trying to get in, and I was like, "Screw it! I have to go up the stairs." Whatever. Okay. Um, oh, so they just didn't have room for you to go in the elevator. You could have just waited. They come up and down, Josh. <laughs> They'll come back. This is new information. <laughs> All right. Um, moving on. Link on Twitter says, hey, Ben and Carlos, love your show. Um, Link also has a question. Thanks, Link. Yeah, thank you, Link. How do you guys feel about Aurelvis Martinez and Manuel Beltre? Do they have a chance to be headliners for the Blue Jays farm system in the coming years? Uh, ben, will adjust this one to you since you do their system. Yeah, I could see. I mean, it's a really good farm system that the Blue Jays have, but Aurelvis Martinez is, I believe they assigned him to, to low A. He should be in there for, for a few more years. I, I think he has the talent to one day be the number one prospect in – in that system, he had a, again, like that's another example of a guy I'm really excited to see this year, a 28 big 2018 international signing was our number one prospect in the Gulf coast league in 2019. He's a shortstop, but I think really he's going to end up at third base and he's going to hit and hit for power and has a good arm and he's going to profile really well there. Um, but um, yeah, I, I I like him, I like him a lot. I, I think he he has a chance to be a, a middle of the lineup type bat and and play a pretty solid. Uh, I I think it's going to be third base for them. So he's you know still a bunch of other guys like Martin and Groshans and and Woods Richardson and Manoa and Gabriel Moreno, uh, you know who are who are really good prospects in that system. But um, but yeah, I, I could absolutely see him being if not their number one prospect, one of their top couple of prospects pretty soon. And yeah, Manuel Beltre international signing from January 15th this year out of the Dominican Republic, uh, really good hitter. He's not like a crazy tools guys. You're not going to see sixes and sevens on his card, but the, the bat, uh, the bat is really good. He has a really Really advanced swing. He performs really well in games, at least the amateur games that we um, 
you know, have been able to, you know, people have been able to evaluate him at, and I think it's, it's a really good understanding of, of the strike zone. Again, this will all be tested (laughs) in much stiffer ways when he gets to the GCL. I'm assuming he's going to almost certainly start in the GCL this year as a, as a 17 year old. And again, if it's more of a college league than usual, it'll be a really uh, stiff test for him. But um, you know, he, he was their big signing this year for the blue Jays. And I think if you just look at the track record of the blue Jays international signings, when they've really spent big on a guy over the last several years, you know, there's some years where they've maybe spread it around a little bit more and, uh, you know, one year where they gave, you know, more of their money to Eric Pardino, who's a pitcher. It's a little different situation, but when they've put a lot of money into a hitter, it's been Vladdy Jr. He's been all right this year, right? Uh, or Elvis Martinez, so far, so good. Obviously, hasn't even hit low A yet, but, uh, you know, those two signings look really good so far. So I'm, I'm kind of inclined to give the Blue Jays um, some benefit of the doubt here not that i have a ton of doubts per se about manuel beltre uh but i'm I'm just kind of inclined to uh to really trust their judgment because of the kind of the last two guys they've uh put big money into as far as position players in latin america have have turned out uh, pretty good so far all right and then our final question comes from old style guy on twitter who says gavin lux excelled in the minors but is struggling in his first 200 at bats Time to reevaluate his tools and future projection, or will he turn into the elite player that everyone expected a year ago? And just so everyone is aware, through 61 big league games and 201 at bats, Lux is hitting 204, 264, 338. Um, so I'll just throw that to the group if you guys have any thoughts on this one. Yeah, I'm not worried. There's a very, 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 very long list of hitters who really struggled through their first 200 plate appearances, 300 plate appearances, 400 plate appearances before things finally click for them. I think one of my favorite examples, go back and look at Jim Tomey came up in 1991, you know, ended up going back down to the minors, came back up 1992, back down to the minors, spent most of 93 in the minors, came up at the end of the year was okay. And then finally his fourth year in the majors was when he finally became well, I don't even want to say became Jim Tomey as we know him, but that was his first year of like, okay, this is really starting to click. And then year five is when he became, you know, the star predicted. These guys take time. There are lots and lots and lots of guys who take years. Again, I think we have to remember that the Juan Sotos and Fernando Tatises of the world are the exception, not the rule. And Gavin Lux is a really talented hitter. He has had some inconsistent playing time. Some of it was reporting to camp last year late and never really was just able to get on track or find a rhythm this year looked really good in spring training. Then he suffered a wrist injury and we know wrist injuries don't do hitters any favors. So he'll be fine. I don't think there's any reason to panic. And at the end of the day, yeah, you still feel good about this guy becoming a very, very, very good major league player. All right. Uh, I think that, wraps up everything we have for this episode uh thank you all for listening thank you guys for sending in your questions Uh, again if you want to send in questions for future episodes you can do that um via our twitter account which is at future pro pod you can do that at ben's twitter account at ben badler both on twitter and instagram or you can do that at my twitter account at carlos a colazzo 
Um, and for all of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast, we really thank you for that. It, it still does help us. I, I guess we're basically an established podcast at this point. It's 10 episodes in, but uh, if you have not done that and you feel so inclined, we really do appreciate that. Before we jump off, I'll give everyone a chance to plug anything they have coming up that they want listeners to know about. Um, Kyle, I'll start with you. Anything that, that you want the listeners to know about that you have planned on the site or just anything that you're working on? Yeah, so today we put out the best tools in the minor leagues, so go ahead and check that out just in time for minor league opening day. Uh, we're also putting together a list of the most loaded opening day rosters in the minors, and that should come out Tuesday morning just before the first pitch is thrown, so go ahead and check that out as well. I think those are the two main things right now, and uh, yeah, we're going to have a lot of minor league coverage from opening day. I'll be out at Inland Empire seeing uh, the Angels affiliate there take on the Dodgers affiliate Ranch Cucamonga. I know JJ Cooper is going to be out in Kannapolis and we're going to be all over the country for minor league opening day. So definitely keep an eye out for uh, sights and sounds from minor leagues grand return after 19 months away now. Josh, anything that you want to plug? And if you want to, you might have to unmute yourself. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mentioned the, um, the gigantic list of minor league spring training people. It's a, 3,000 something words and counting. I probably have a few hundred more words to go, a few more guys to write up. Um, we might get this baby to 4,000 by the end of the night. Um, I'm going to have a thing about the broadcast. Some of the broadcasters this year in the minor leagues have to do recreations uh, because they're not allowed to travel on the road with their teams. So they're going to be doing those old style, like you'll watch MILB game day or something. And when a ball is hit, they go, you know, they, take a ball and hit it against a bat and go crack or they throw a ball into a glove and that's banned. The field Are you kidding? Well, Jesse Goldberg Strassler does it once a year for um, just for nostalgia purposes, but there's going to be plenty of that going on this year in the minors. So, so they're going to be literally just having the, their like their game day feed open and calling a game and, Yep, making the fake artificial sounds themselves Some based of them, on that. Here's one nugget like, I don't think they have to do the bat thing because it's just hard to do that at a velocity where it would a not screw up any equipment and b make the accurate sound. So, Jesse has shipped some of these broadcasters pre recorded sounds. So, I was about to say, can we not just get some audio? What, what here's the here's the kicker the perfect bat crack he got was Vladdy Guerrero Jr. from when he Breakout was hitter of the year, baby. When he was with Lansing. So for certain broadcasts, every time you hear the ball hit the bat, it's Vladdy Guerrero Jr. Uh. Again. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's going to be the, uh, a lot of broadcasters aren't, I forget how the rule works, aren't allowed to go on the road. And some of it's COVID policy based on whatever jurisdiction uh, and some of it is simply um, they don't teams don't want to pay for a hotel room for the broadcaster or things like that. Uh, I know they all have to travel off the team buses. So like your broadcast is going to be driving from wherever to wherever, which is not bad in some leagues, but it's annoying in others. Um, Just so have the minor league broadcaster drive the bus. What could go wrong there? 
<laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, you're going to hear a lot of recreation this year. And I talked to Jesse Goldberg Strassler um, a few days ago, I guess. Um, and that should be on the site tomorrow as well. So that's going to be up there. And then hopefully if the weather plays nice and it freaking better, I'm looking at you clouds, uh, need plays Josh nice. was literally looking out of his window at the sky. I was an old so man making my fist at a cloud. Great, <laughs> so great way to end. Uh, it, it, I think I'll be at Greensboro. If not Winston-Salem, um, I'll be somewhere. I'll be somewhere tweeting about someone uh, watching baseball not in front of the computer. Well, congratulations, Josh. I know yes. you're excited about that. Ben, is there anything you want to plug? I just want to thank everybody who's been subscribing to BA over the last year, or certainly many people for much longer than that. But uh, it feels really awesome to have, like we've been talking about, to have minor league baseball back. I remember back in, even before March, even like late February, I was very um, anxious and nervous about what was going to happen to uh to to the world over uh over at, at that time and then when everything shut down as you can imagine having major league baseball minor league baseball uh and college baseball all shut down is not great for baseball america so we I mean, it, up until that point, like everything was going like great at, at BA, like about as well as it's ever been uh, since I've been at BA going back to 2007 and between baseball shutting down and, you know, the, you know, what I thought and, you know, did at least happen with uh, people losing their, their jobs and, and the economy going where it did. Um, I was pretty nervous about what was going to happen, but, um, people, we had a lot of, a lot of loyal subscribers to BA over that time who, um, you know, kept checking in for, for our draft coverage, our, um, you know, coverage of summer, uh, you know, high school showcases, the alternate training site, uh, instructional league other prospect coverage that we had um, our international prospect coverage is, is okay too. So, um, you know, that was pushback, but we, we still had that. So we still had a lot of people um, signing up and, and reading the site uh, every day. So um, definitely just have a, a lot of gratitude for all you guys who've been uh, not just listening to the podcast, but, you know, reading us at, at BA and, subscribing to BA to allow us to keep doing what we're doing. And it finally feels like everything is kind of back and clicking or about to start clicking at full cylinder for just for what we do at BA. Now that we've got, you know, we had college baseball back, our, our normal spring high school coverage is back again. I mean, some of the schools obviously have been a little bit modified as far as their seasons, but um, all of our, our normal draft coverage is back. We've got 20 rounds this year instead of five stupid little round drafts. <laughs> that's, 
that's a good thing. And now, now minor league baseball is back. And it just feels like the kind of that last and final wheel on the bus is, is attached and we're ready to really crank things up here over, over the next uh, few months. So, um, or obviously all really, really excited about that. I know all of uh, all you listening to are, are pretty psyched too, to have actual minor league baseball back. So I just want to thank everybody for um, subscribing and, and kind of supporting everything that we've been doing at, at BA over, over the past years. And uh, I'm really, really, really excited to have minor league baseball back. Well, I couldn't have closed this out any better than that. So thank you, Ben. And thank you to everyone who's listened. And thank you, of course, to all the BA subscribers for Kyle, for Josh, for Ben. I'm Carlos. We'll see you next time, everybody. Happy minor league opening day. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.